Here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. First of all, how many people get your name wrong when they try to pronounce it? Well, so many people I don't even care anymore. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just, however it comes out. Because I live in, it's a funny name where I come from. Right. From England. Well, growing up, it's a funny name. But in Mexico, it's even stranger name. So I just normally make it Ian. And my second name, Grillo, which in Spanish is Grillo. Right. So everyone... I they mess that up too if they see it spelled. Yeah. Pull this uh, microphone about a fist from your face right there. Yeah. There we go. Um, Yoan. I don't think I've ever heard that name before. There's an actor called Yoan Grufford. What's he in? He's in Fantastic Four. Oh, really? He's the stretchy guy. Oh, no shit. In Fantastic Four. So yeah, he kind of... He's made that name a little bit more. A little bit more acceptable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, how did you wind up living in Mexico City? So I, I came to Mexico or went to Mexico in the year 2000 and uh, I kind of messed around for a few years in the UK, wanted to get into journalism. So I found one way to get into it was to start working in a foreign country rather than going to my local newspaper and work and go to a foreign country and start working. And I had a romantic idea about Latin America, thinking I'd be like, I saw the movie Salvador, ah. you know, Oliver Stone's movie from the yeah. 80s. I kind of had a had a... Had a Romantic idea about running around with guerrillas, um, fighting military dictatorships. Um, so I arrived in Mexico in 2000 and got a job at an English language newspaper. How old were you? 27 when I first left the UK. Yeah, 28 when I, I, I messed around for a bit in Mexico as well and then got the job when I was 28. Mexico City's a wild place. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so packed. It's it's hard to... I've only been there twice for uh, UFC events. Yeah. But every time I'm there, I'm just shaking my head like, I can't believe how this traffic works. It's crazy. Yeah, 18 years, and I've spent a lot of time in that traffic. Nobody cares about red lights, green lights. They don't care. It's stressful. Everyone cut, wants to cut you up all the time. Yeah. People shout at you a lot. You have to get used to people calling you like, pendejo, <laughs> cerdo. <laughs> I try different tactics now I just try and relax and not get angry did you know how to speak Spanish before you went there yeah yeah so I spent one year in Spain living in Spain before I went there I spent a year in the Middle East as well um, and uh, but yeah I started off when I arrived I spoke more to Spanish Spanish which is like oye tío coño tío and then I mm. changed more to like the Mexican Spanish which was like oye wey que paso wey <laughs> right 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 yeah so when did you start getting into narco journalism? So, like I arrived to say with a romantic idea about what I might cover in in, right. uh, in Mexico um, or Latin America, and right away I realized all that idea of guerrillas and military dictatorships that are, that are gone. That was the last century. Mm. Che Guevara, all that stuff, that had gone. But right away when I arrived, when I very first arrived, first I, back in the UK, I grew up around a lot of drugs in the UK, so. Going back to the, the 80s, I grew up with a lot of people taking drugs. I had a few friends who died from heroin overdoses back then. Four people I knew died of heroin overdoses. I had a sister who went, who became uh, schizophrenic, smoking a lot of, a lot of, well, no, she was, became schizophrenic and there'd be a lot of drugs being smoked around that time as well. Was so, it pot? Yeah. Back then it was uh, Moroccan hashish. There's, there, there's a connection. You know, and we've been exploring that a lot lately. Uh, yeah. We, we went into this uh, marijuana debate between um, uh, Alex Berenstein and um, Dr. Mike Hart from Canada, and we talked about it. And I know people that have had that happen to them, where they've had schizophrenic or psychotic breaks because of just massive doses of marijuana, and especially people that don't do it, or people that do it too much for too long. It does happen. 
I, I heard that debate. That's yeah. one, of, one of the reasons why it came to mind. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, a lot of people smoke weed, smoke yeah. hash. A lot of people, uh, it's fine. Uh, now, when, when my sister had a breakdown, when she was 18 and I was 16 at the time, and when that came out, it turned out also my, my, my grandmother had an issue with schizophrenia. Right. And I think, I don't know if it was a time bomb waiting to go mm -hmm. off. Yeah. Or if it was how much the, the, the hash was involved in that. There's other issues as well. So I don't really know the science of it. But, but anyway, going back. So, so I, I've been around a lot of drugs before. Um, so when I arrived in Mexico, actually, one of the first, uh, first arriving in Mexico, I ended up hanging around with some, some people. And they were smoking a lot of crack in, in Mexico. It's one of some of the first people I met. Wow. Um, I, was, I went down to the beach, like backpacking down to the beach, and these people were smoking, smoking crack. And I was like, this is kind of strange. I didn't know these people smoking crack down here. So when I got a, a job at the local newspaper in English, and I just started looking at the crime thing, one of the first stories I did was on the issue of crack being sold locally and how that linked to, to cartels. And then very soon, just very, very quickly, I just fell in right away. Like I said, all these things happened by accident. I just fell into covering the crime beat. And this is going back to 2001. So 2001, that was the same year that Chapo Guzman escaped from prison. Uh, then I was calling a lot then to a great journalist from Tijuana, Jesus Blanconelas, you know, a real legend from Tijuana who survived the shooting by, by cartels. And, you know, phoning him up all the time, just getting him you know, to give me information, give me tips. And that was how it really started. One of the, another big story I did back in those days was uh, the court-martial of some generals for drug trafficking. Uh, and that was really where it began back then. Generals for drug trafficking. How much of an issue is that? Uh, I mean, corruption must be unbelievably rampant. So, I mean, corruption even isn't a strong enough word for it. Mm. Um, sometimes I call it state capture. I mean, so this is the real beginning, and, and this has been a whole crazy 18 years of covering this stuff. I mean, this was just the very beginning back then. I've seen a whole lot of very crazy stuff in that time. But, like, just to get a sense of how bad the corruption is or, or what it really means on, on, on the ground level there. Like, there's a policeman. Like, you interview policemen, you get to know the policeman in a certain town, certain city. Um, and it's hard to know, you know, how, or, or military guys or politicians. And, and you want to believe these are good people. You want to believe there's good policemen out there who really want to stop crime. So there was one policeman. His nickname was Tyson, uh, Tyson like Mike Tyson. His nickname was Tyson because he was a, a well-built bloke, well-built guy. And uh, he was friendly with the press, a guy from Michoacan, friendly with the press. Um, and then it came out that he was actually a drug cartel member a ranking member in the drug cartel and he actually confessed they they used to have a thing where the police the, the federal police when they got him got him to confess on camera and he confessed not only was he turning a blind eye not only was he carrying out murders he was training the young kids how to decapitate people how to cut people up and he was explaining in graphic detail how he'd like you know how they managed to cut limbs off how he gets young people to train them to cut limbs off to get them to lose their fear. So that's the level of corruption. That could be a policeman you're dealing with, and that's really who they are. Um, so that's one of the, the crazy things about the corruption down there. Did you have any hesitancy in getting involved in narco journalism knowing this? I mean, I would imagine that's one of the most dangerous avenues to pursue in journalism. So this was 
little by little I got involved in covering this. So like it, like going back to 2000, this hadn't happened. This war hadn't happened. It was still like a crime issue at that moment. So I began to cover these things. And then around 2004, I got a job for the Houston Chronicle out of Houston, Texas. I was covering, I was a stringer covering Mexico for them. And I flew up to a lot to Nuevo Laredo. And there was a turf war beginning there, which is really the beginning of the drug war, which has torn Mexico apart, began on the border with Texas in this city called Nuevo Laredo over the bridge from Laredo, Texas, back in 2004. So there was a lot of interest from the, the, the Texas newspapers, what was going on. There's a whole bunch of bodies piling up there. But again, this going back to these days, and this is kind of innocent looking back, innocent looking at myself then and innocent looking at what Mexico was like then. They would simply say, go to the place. I'd drive up to Monterrey, rent a car, and just drive the car to Nuevo Laredo just by myself. And now people just don't do that. There's just too much crazy stuff going on. But back then it was still like, oh, you can just do that. So there was When you say crazy stuff, like what kind of crazy stuff? I mean, now you can get stopped by an armed group driving on those roads you could you could just drive along and there could be a you know group of guys with guns could stop the car get someone out takes take you away i mean there's a whole people are a lot more careful about you know where you now now when i'm when you move around the roads you could be very careful how you move and how you plan this stuff you don't mm. just wander by yourself drive around these places so so back then when this was happening and um there was uh these bodies turning up and i was trying to figure out why and and i uh, there was one a guy I interviewed who was the head of Chamber of Commerce. Um, and I talked to him, you know, a very interesting guy. About a w- couple of weeks later, he became the chief of police for the city. And they asked him, they said, are you scared? Um, you know, are you scared about being killed? And he said, no, I'm not scared. It's only the corrupt people who get killed. And he was shot dead six hours after he gave that statement. They shot him dead. And that was one of the real markers of something really strange is going on in Mexico. Something is like going to erupt in Mexico. Uh, and then from there, it kind of just escalated and escalated. And uh, um, I started working for the other media, Time Magazine, New York Times, different people. And after a while, I said, I can't do this. I can't just write news stories about this. I've got to write books about this mm. because this stuff is big and it's complicated. It must be immensely complicated. For the, the people that live there, it seems like there's no escape. I mean, if you, you can't turn to the police, the police are the cartel. Mm. There's the cartel, the police, all of the politicians, most likely, if they're alive, have to be compromised. Yeah. I mean, th- there's been some very, very desperate people. and I mean, there's been some very, there's been some inspirational people as well fighting this. There's been heroes. There are heroes. Um, just to get more of a sense of what that means on the ground as well, uh, you know, and some of the things you see. Uh, you know, some of the things that stay with me. You know, for, for a while it was quite romantic covering this. It was like, wow, I'm covering, I'm going to these places where Chapel Guzman is from. You know, I go up to the village and meet his mother and meet his family. Um, I'm, I'm writing about these, these crazy people. But then you start seeing the, the human pain in all of this. Um, one of many stories that, that, that stick with me was a mother in Monterrey, a school teacher. You know, when you have armed guys moving around, they're also, like, uh, really affecting the civil population, attacking the civil population. And one mother, um, she was in her home with her two children in Monterrey. And a, it was, like, in the night just chilling in their house, and then the door broke down. 
and about 15 guys in bulletproof jackets all came in long arms just taking stuff from the house held the family you know pinned them down and they said to the mother which of your children is the oldest and she was like didn't know how to reply i mean which of your children are the oldest how do i how do i reply to that she just couldn't speak and the eldest son she had two sons one 18 one 15 the 18 year old was a philosophy student and he said um i'm i'm the oldest I said okay you're coming with us and took him away and the next day she got a phone call saying okay we've got your son give us this amount of money we'll give him back so she went round to like relatives just got the money she wanted to get the money right away she turned up with the money gave some money and then they just cut off the calls she hadn't heard from him since and uh, i i mean seeing her face the devastation um the pain she said like you know just couldn't couldn't go on with life after that and just not knowing not having the closure and i met her when i went to report on one of the worst atrocities which was 49 bodies who'd all been decapitated all had their hands and feet cut off and all been dumped on a road and they were taken to the morgue in Monterrey and I arrived at the, the morgue I, I was inside the morgue just smelling the smell of the dead bodies this kind of weird smell you get from like decaying flesh kind of like a sweet smell you get from when you're around those places where you can smell the, the bodies decaying and I was inside the morgue and I came out and she was outside the morgue and she was trying to see if, if her son might be among those people among those bodies <sighs> Uh, you know, it's it's so insane that this is right next door to America and there's so little effort put on doing something about it, including doing something to mitigate the influence of illegal drugs by making drugs legal. Mm. I mean, that would be one gigantic step. You're, you're not going to stop people from doing drugs. I mean, this is an illogical, ridiculous approach. I don't think people should do most of those drugs. But when you make drugs illegal, only criminals are going to sell those drugs. And this is exactly what you have right next door to America. I mean, it's just unbelievably insane that there's this amount of crime a drive away from San Antonio. Yeah, and, and talking about that issue of the money and the economics of this. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at cocaine. So you got, so you got the – there was four main drugs. Now it's, you've got fentanyl coming in as well, and the, dr and the cartels are making fentanyl. They're making it. Making it, yeah. They're, ma they're making it, bringing in precursors, making it. There was a lab, one lab, I was in Nogales uh, about a year and a half ago. They, they bust a lab in Nogales right on the border. They were making, had the lab there, making the fentanyl and bringing it up here. But as well as that, you've got the other four main drugs historically. Uh, marijuana, uh, heroin, cocaine, and crystal meth. And this goes back 100 years. Like So Sinaloa, which is the cradle of Mexican drug trafficking, Sinaloa is a bit like Sicily is to the mafia, like Sinaloa is to the Mexican drug cartels, where it began. And it began right, so you go back to 1914, you had in the US the Harrison's Narcotics Tax Act, when they made, uh, they restricted opium and cocaine in the United States. And from 1915, they began a cross-border trade from Mexico to the United States. So that's when it started? All the way back then, so over 100 years ago. Some of the very first people doing it were actually Chinese Mexicans. They were Chinese immigrants who'd arrived in Mexico. They began doing this. They bought opium um, from, from China, planted it in, in Mexico. 
and some of the first people receiving it were Chinese Americans. Some of these very early cases, there's a case from 1916 investigated, there's documents about this case where there was Chinese Mexicans trafficking to Chinese Americans here in California. And at that time, there was a governor of Baja California involved um, right back then. What is the solution? Is there any solutions to this? Well, I mean, it, I get, you know, I think a lot of people covering this, you get very weary. You want to f- see solutions. Yeah. Um, you want to find solutions and you want to come with that optimism of finding solutions and, and you want to justify why you're doing this, um, what you're doing this for. Not just to tell the stories, but to look for solutions to this. Um, and it, it gets weary, but there's three areas, I believe, that are solutions. First, I do agree with you on the idea of drug policy reform. Again, it, it's tough uphill battle. I mean, I, going back to 2012, I wrote editorials about, you know, one of the reasons you should legalize marijuana is because of the marijuana come from Mexico, which goes to cartels, which pays for killers, which pays for corruption. But at the same time, marijuana, a lot of, you know, a lot of it is legalized in the United States and the violence actually just got worse in Mexico. So you've also got the issue of heroin, uh, cocaine, um, crystal meth, fentanyl, and you've got the cartels who've got into a bunch of other rackets now. They steal crude oil, which is a big deal. They steal billions of dollars worth of crude oil, criminals down there, from pipelines. Kid, just tap into a pipeline or something? Yeah, you go to a pipeline. You, have, you normally put in two taps. You drill two holes in the pipeline. You drill a hole to, uh, put, to take the oil out. You drill a hole to put water in to try and keep it equal, uh, the, the pressure the same. Mm. If you saw this a crazy video recently of, uh, in, in, a, in a small town in Mexico where a bunch of – there was a tap open, a really, a really bad tap. Which the, the oil was just spraying out. And a bunch of people were lining up just to pick up the oil from the pipeline and it exploded. And just it was just like crazy death toll. Yeah, from, I did see that. From, from, from that. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, the, I do believe in, 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 uh, in drug policy reform. We have to talk about this. It has to be on the table. I mean, Americans, you know, no one knows really what Americans spend on drugs. But there's this survey uh, which you can find online. If you just you know, tap in, what do Americans spend on illegal drugs? And there's an estimate of $100 billion a year. <sighs> so, you know, that amount of money, I mean, that's an estimate. I mean, it could be right. You know, it's hard to know. It's a very round number. But like $100 billion a year. Now, if you think about that pumping into these cartels year after year, I mean, decades, you know, how much of that, you know, if it's $30 billion of that going down to Mexico, then over 10 years, $300 billion, over 30 years, close to a trillion dollars, that really creates this, this monster. But in anyway, a secondary, so I, mean, I believe in drug policy reform. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, rehab for everyone who needs it because heroin addicts buy a lot of heroin. So everyone you save from that, you can, uh, you know, you can stop a lot of heroin and a lot of that money, which does money goes to these people who are doing this stuff. But a secondary, I believe, is, is social work uh, in the neighborhoods. Like I've talked to, I've done a lot of interviews with, particularly with the assassins, with the killers. Um, in cartels in Mexico and, and also around Latin America. I've been traveling around Jamaica, um, Brazil, Central America, Colombia, talking to a lot of the killers especially. And when I sit down with them, I, I try and get their life story. Like, how did they first get into this? Because you're not born doing this stuff. And often, I mean, in some cases, there's, there's different profiles. There's some of them, uh, you know, there's one... One guy, this is down in Honduras, which is also a crazy situation. There's a guy there. I'd actually met him before. I'd met him 
when I was doing some reporting down there back in 2015, and he was driving for us, and he was also carrying a gun to help protect us. I was with a journalist who had a, who'd had who'd been hit before, who'd been actually shot before. And uh, then I met him again afterwards and got him to tell his story, which is kind of typical of a lot of these guys. And he described how he'd been abandoned as a kid by his parents and had this real hate that he had with the world, like, you know, just fuck the world. Um, and he described the first time that he carried out murders. Um, and it, this was actually, I mean, he carried out, later on he, he, doc, he documented all these hits he'd done and decapitations he'd done and this kind of crazy stuff. But the first time he carried out a murder was probably the, the, the freakiest when he was, I think, 14. And they got a, a family. They went into a house. They got a family and they butchered a family. And he described, when he described that, and then described later on, you know, how he became a, a hired killer. And the thing about him, like some of these people, you think they're psychopaths. They just, they really um, don't care. But some of them really do have these conflicts inside their heart. I think he was someone, or at least back to that interview. And he had, and it's hard to, to balance that, someone who does evil, but also has been a victim as well, a victim and a victimizer. And you feel that pain. Since since then, he's himself been been murdered. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, uh, he was, you know, one. So how do you get social work to reach people from a very young age? Because often they're recruited into organized crime when they're 12, 13 years old. So he butchered this family when he was 14. Was he stealing money from them? Was he? So the story with that was he, he said that he was hanging around with these basically street kids. And one of the other kids said, I know where there's some money in a house. We can get some money in a house. So they went in there and killed this family. And it turned out there was no money there. And the reason the other kid had said go there was because he'd actually been living with his family. And he said they'd been abusive to him. So he wanted to like reve have revenge on his family. But what was so really sick about this, to, when he was describing it, was they had this family and they would, to stop them defending themselves, they would like take them one by one, like pin them in a, in a room and take them one by one, like take them out, butcher them, how the other ones didn't really know what was going on. And think, I mean, the action itself, but how like teenage kids can think about that stuff. And then later on, when he was talking about the uh, decapitations, he was talking about they get contracts with decapitation inside the court. Like they say, look, we want this killing. We want you to decapitate the guy. We want this doc. We want to see video of the guy being decapitated. We want that. We want the guy to suffer. And when he hacks the heads off, there'll sometimes still be a moment when, like, when the life goes out of them, and when the body is still like twitching. Like he says, they can still see, like, there's a, there's a bit like nerves, almost like a chicken, like a headless chicken. There's a bit, there's a part when they're still, like, twitching a bit, even after they, uh, you know, they've lost their kind of seven their connections there. Oof. Now, when you're interviewing these people, how nervous are you? I mean, this seems like if you're putting all this stuff down, you could implicate them in some crimes and... It seems like it would be very convenient for them to try to get rid of you. So there's there's a whole bunch of different situations around interviews. Sometimes I've interviewed people in prisons, a lot of time in prisons. 
Um, you know, this took me years to, to get to a lot of these people. First of all, you know, and I, it wasn't like a, um, when I first started doing this, I was like, you know, how do I get, how do I reach them? And started going around to drug rehab places and talking to people in drug rehab. Um, going into prisons in, in Ciudad Juarez, I did a lot of uh, interviews in, in one prison. I got to know a lot of prisoners in the prison in Ciudad Juarez in a Christian evangelical wing there. And they were going through this weird Christian, you know, like Christian uh, um, you know, discovery of God there. And then through the st- on the street, often like through contact, I mean, well, all the time through contacts on the street. Um, in, in Honduras, a lot of great contacts with a friend who's a, who's a journalist who grew up in his neighbors with all these guys. He just knows loads of these guys from growing up. Now, there's different different things. You know, there have been bad situations. I think anybody covering this has had some bad situations sometime. People get angry, people threaten them and so forth. But a lot of the time when, I, when you talk to people, I mean, one thing is you have to be very, a lot of the time you have to be very stringent about protecting their identity and really serious about that because there's been cases where, various cases where other people have interviewed killers and shown their identity either through them showing their face or through like some dumb thing being shown. And they have been themselves murdered, you know, butchered after these, they've given these interviews or like other things have happened. They've been threatened or something, their family or arrested or so forth. So you really got to protect people's identities. In a way, in terms of when they talk and stuff, and I don't really feel nervous when I interview all these people. I probably feel more nervous here talking to you. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, that's just probably because it's like on, on, a, on a big show. It's a different, a different thing when when you're like talking to. First, you know, you start with easy questions, like anything. You start talking about how you know how you you know. People are human. They're human beings, and people have got people are complicated. And I haven't just interviewed, and I've also got drunk with some of these people and hung around with some of these people um, for times trying to get closer, like, uh, you know, spent time to try and understand their world a bit more. What's the most time you've ever spent with these people? I mean, several days, uh, several days, yeah. Like, uh, you know, like, I mean, I'll see them, see them again, hang out, you know, hang out with them in different places. Not all the time. Sometimes just, you know, sit down, do interviews and, and just leave. Uh but it's, it's it's a complicated world for them. It's it's their normality. You know, it's, for them it's normal. Uh, it's it's what they've what they've lived, what they've been through, what's happening around them. I mean, this level of murder that's happening in a lot of parts of Latin America now it's crazy. But in these areas, it's, and as well, you talk to other people who are just on the edge of this, or have family members involved in this, and it's just they're living this. I mean, these are levels of violence, and it's interesting to compare historically these levels of violence. Um, because you look at some of the worst cities like San Pedro Sula, Honduras, Caracas, um, Ciudad Juarez. And these are places which have levels of violence which are like way worse than medieval Europe. A lot of places in medieval Europe. Oof. I mean, you look at the figures per 100,000. Because some of them have you know, over 100 per 100,000, 150 per 100,000. And medieval Europe, a lot of these cities were like 20 per 100,000. So they're way worse now, way worse in the Wild West than like. Now, there are some places in the United States today, like I mean, I did, I've done some research recently in Baltimore, Maryland. And I was kind of, it's interesting to compare that to Latin America. And that's a high level. That's 40 per 100,000. So that's, that's not as the same level, but it's significant. Still more than medieval Europe. Yeah. 
Wow. Baltimore is worse than medieval Europe. Yeah, I mean, I have to, guess you have to, have to, some professors, they, they might, you know, like you get like, you know, they might be, they might say, well, Jerusalem in this time or, you know, like, you know like you've got to try and, you know, it's hard to know, really dig down exactly. I don't know if there was outbreaks of violence and killing in certain places. Right, but, but the overall average. Yeah, overall average, yeah. That's a significant leap, 100% leap. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Absolutely. Yeah. Baltimore. What yeah. about South Side of Chicago? It's not that. I mean, like the level I think in Chicago comes at around twenty or something. So it's not now the I mean, the, of the whole city. Now these again, one, one of the things about the violence in the United States compared to Latin America. I mean, Baltimore is is is, is significant, but it's a fairly well. The city of Baltimore is a fairly small place. What they're talking about. So in Mexico, you have entire states that are like really violent, or entire countries in Latin America. Whereas in the U.S., it tends to be neighborhoods which are violent. Um, so if you really focus on the south side of Chicago, it's probably similar levels to Baltimore. I think you know it's. Uh, um, but the, if you look at the whole city, you've got neighborhoods that are pretty safe in Chicago as well. Now, through all of this time that you spent down in Mexico, have you seen it? You've seen it escalate. You've seen it get yeah. worse and worse. Yeah. So there was first this really big escalation happened in two thousand eight. Was the first big escalation. What was the cause of that? So you had, there was a steady buildup that was happening. Um, and then in 2006, you had the president, Felipe Calderon, declared a military crackdown on drug cartels. And after that, there was this big response and things started really getting out of hand. We'd already seen violence escalating before. And in, you know, my idea, my kind of theory behind this is that um, you had in Mexico back in the 20th century more of a, a top-down um, centralized government controlling everything. You had the PRI in power. And they were um, – basically they were controlling it through corruption. So back then they'd have the drug cartels working for them. And an interesting story going back then to the 19, late 1970s, a story in a book called Drug Lord by Terence Popper who interviewed a, a drug trafficker in the 80s. When he got the, his job as the Jefe de Plaza, which is the head of a certain territory, when he got the job, he went with the state police at the time and said, I want to become the, uh, the head of the plaza. And they took him in and tortured him for two days and like, you know, beat the crap out of him, put electric shocks on his nuts, one of the, one of the, the big torches they do in Mexico, put water laced with chili in his nose. It's not like one of these big, so your whole face burns. These are like torture techniques they have. And after two days of torturing, we said, yeah, well done. You know, you, you survive well. You've got the job. So, well, you know, what it shows is that the police had the upper hand. The police controlled this. They were like, okay, we control this racket. And, you know, we can fuck around and torture and kill drug traffickers when we like. Uh, you know, and all up to the presidency. I mean, there was, uh, in, in that time, Carlos Salinas became president in 94. His brother, Raul Salinas, they, the, the Swiss investigated his bank accounts and said he had $500 million in bank accounts, which they, you know, they, they believed it was drug money. So right up to the presidency, this was, was being run. Oof. When Mexico changed democracy, so when I arrived in Mexico, it was changing to democracy. It was like, wow, great, democracy is going to happen. Free markets going to happen. You know, we're in the good days of the 21st uh, century now. But what happened was you looked, the political control shifted. So you had a bunch of different political parties. And they were fighting over the drug trade. And, you know, I was one time in Nuevo Laredo 
when the federal police had a shootout with the municipal police. They were fighting each other, probably because they're working for different drug cartels. Wow. So that's what started. But then you had the techniques, like the technique of beheading wasn't really a big deal. It was very, very rarely used up until around 2006. And one of the first incidents was in Acapulco in 2006, in about June 2006. Now, it might have been after inspired by the Al-Qaeda Sakawi in a video, which was shown in full on Mexican TV. I remember when that came out, when they decapitated the guy in Iraq. And they decapitated. First, it was two policemen they decapitated. Later that year, in September 2006, there was five heads they rolled onto a disco dance floor. And then this thing just became just escalating. It just became this kind of like using this terror, public terror. So 2006, 2008 was a big escalation. And then 2011, 12 were like crazy. And then it subsided a bit and the, pub, the violence got a bit less public. And it was more like hidden, like mass grave stuff. Now, the worst mass grave that's been discovered so far um, was in Veracruz. Now, I've been to the side of it. And it was 250 bodies were found in this mass grave in one place. And it was right next to a housing estate. And there's families. It was so one of the saddest things was you see, you see there kiddies' bicycles and basketball hoops and stuff right next to this. And the field next to that, they dug up 250 bodies. And the smell was like emanating to this housing estate. And it's like kind of middle class, the dream of becoming middle class that was the, the kind of summed in this housing estate and right next to it, this violence. But when I say a lot of these stories, and I mean, these are crazy stories, but a lot of Me the weird thing is a lot of Mexico lives a normality around this. It's not what you, this is not what you see every day. This, is, this happens but there's also just a normality that could just be like you're outside here in, in LA and normal people living normal lives around this as well. What is the response in Mexico? Like what, it, what it, I mean, after they wanted to have this military action against the cartels, obviously that hasn't really put a dent in it. What, it, what, what's the, the current thought process behind dealing with this? So there's been a, there was a bunch of like citizen, um, protest movements various times um, during these recent years. And one of them was a, was a very interesting guy called Javier Cecilia, who's a poet and a writer whose son was murdered. And he, when it first happened, his son was murdered and he just came out. Says, the press was there. He's like, you know, I can't. This is just like, this is just, you know, Mexico's gone. I can't, I can't deal with this. My son's being killed. And then he began talking in very, you know, and then he, he went to the streets and people were coming out publicly um, crying. And it was one of the first times there was a realization that a lot of innocent people are dying with this. And people come out and, you know, I went to some of these things, people come out crying, family members, and actually a sense we're, we're victims here because there was a, for a long time, a sense is simply bad guys killing bad guys. And that wasn't the case. Now, the current president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who just won the election last year and he just took power on December the 1st. So he's got two mixed things. So one of them is this idea of the wars over, I'm going to create peace, we can have forgiveness, reconciliation. You know, but it's hard to know what that really means. And his second thing is we need to have um, more of a unified state police. So like what I described before about you had local police fighting the federal police. So we've got to have, so he's got this idea now of a national guard, which is a 
kind of hybrid between military and police thing around. And that's basically his, his, these kind of two thrusts he's in now. He's only been in power a couple of months. January was still a bad month in terms of murders, like in terms of bodies. Last year was more than 33,000 dead last year, which is the size of Mexico, so the equivalent of the United States, having close to 100,000. Now imagine what that would mean in, a, in the United States if you had that many people dying in a year. Um, a month? No, uh, or the in, whole year? Yeah, in the year, the year 100,000. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when these people are, when they're being recruited by the cartels, when the police officers are being recruited, the, the big issue must be, well, there must be two issues, right? Safety, like if they don't join the cartel, they, they probably get murdered. And two, the amount of money the cartel would give them would be far more than the government would give them to be a legitimate police officer. Yeah, sure. And that, that's like uh, known famously platinum, plom, plato, plato plomo, like silver or lead. You want to have the silver of the, of the bribe, mm-hmm. the lead of the bullet. But, but even beyond that, for a long time, a lot of these people who join the police uh, are like from the beginning there, you know, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a video, uh, made a video back in 2010 in Sierra Juarez of a bunch of, uh, of rappers just hanging around in the middle of all this. And one of their friends was saying, and they were talking, and these people were saying, you know, some of them have been done for taking drugs over the border, they've been in gangs and stuff. And one of them was like, I want to be a policeman. And, and he was like, I want to be a policeman and make some money, you know, basically through corruption. So, so, so it is like, that is the mentality of some of these people joining the police from early on. Another guy, a guy I opened, opened the first book with is, is this guy uh, who, who became a policeman um, when he was 18. He was basically a hard, tough guy, played American football from Durango, became a policeman when he was 18. And in the police, learned to torture and learned to murder. He said, that's what I I learned in the police. And (sighs) just at 20, after two years, just left the police and went full-time into crime. It's like, so, you know, you've got a situation where, you know, it's not, you know, it's it's, it's worse even, it's beyond bad, the, the bad that a lot of people might imagine of corruption. God, so all of this essentially is escalated from the time you came to Mexico. So when you came to Mexico, it's almost like you got in. I mean, if it was a story, you got in at almost the perfect time. Yeah. yeah in yeah. a horrible way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, like, you know, you don't, you don't do these things on purpose. Uh, you know, you don't think, um, if I'd look back 20 years ago, I mean, it's 18 years I've been in Mexico now. I had a whole, you know, <laughs> grown up in Mexico in, the, in that sense. I, you know, never look back and, and think that. So now, in terms of myself seeing this, I mean, it's, I mean, I think for anybody, it's, it's, it's painful. Uh, I mean, how you process that level of death, that level of murder, that level of suffering. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's horrible stuff to see, and 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 it's. You can still have a lot of people. Um, separated from that you know families people are bringing up children and you know you want to separate you know kids from that so often like middle class kids in mexico are quite sheltered because families want to shelter them as much as they can from 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 that violence and just you know not let them see that side of things how much of that do you have to deal with in mexico city so mexico city uh, you know is about the same murder rate as houston so Mexico City is not super violent. Now it's still not super safe, but it's not super violent. So Mexico City is kind of, and there are parts of Mexico which are which are fairly safe. Now 
um, the state of Yucatan, you know, where Merida is, is the same murder level as Belgium. So you've got hmm. oasis within Mexico where you don't have this level of violence. So Mexico City is, and it's a great city. Mexico City is a great city to, to live in, in many ways, apart from the traffic and the pollution and various things. I mean, there's a bunch of things that are, and I, and I love all of Mexico and I love all of you know, Latin America. I love even, even the bad places I still love. I enjoy going to these places. I enjoy meeting people there, you know, hang out in these areas. There's a lot of good things about them still. But dealing with all the horrific tragedies that you report about and experience, do you look for an escape route? I mean, are you are you looking to get the fuck out of Dodge? Yeah, I mean, um, there's been different times where uh, I I've thought, you know, I want to I want to stop this now and cover other things. Yeah, uh, as a journalist, and there's the other journalist doing that as well as a journalist called Jesus Esquivel, a great Mexican journalist who's just I just saw him at the uh, trial of El Chapo uh, over in New York um, who's been covering this for years one of the you know really great Mexican uh, correspondents who's covered the drug stuff and he was like he just said to me oh but I've got some stuff maybe I can give you this is the uh, um, I'm gonna this is the last thing I'm gonna do covering drugs now <laughs> and I really, we know we'll see we'll see if that's true um, I think a lot of the time you you know you, you get caught still doing this stuff you know especially when you when you've covered something people want more people are interested there's a and there's relevance to this. Um, I think some of the other struggles beyond, like, the the danger and stuff is simply, I mean, with journalism is in a, in a bad way. A lot of the media are in a bad way. Um, and just simply getting, you know, trying to, you know, I'm a freelance journalist. I love being a freelance journalist. I love the independence. I love being able to write books and travel and write magazine stories and make documentaries and do these things. But, like, just, you know, having the economic base for that. You know, it's, it's, it's degenerated a lot in, in the time that I've been doing it. Have you personally been targeted at all? So there's a couple of situations I had. Um, you know, f I mean, first I want to, you know, I mean, I have to give some uh, kind of respect and uh, condolences to so many colleagues, Mexican colleagues, who have been murdered and been, have been murdered, threatened, had to leave the country and various things, and they've had it bad. Um, including a, a, a friend, a good friend, a great colleague called Javier Valdez, who was shot dead in 2017, May 2017 in Culiacán. A guy who I'd known since 2008, um, great guy, got drunk with him in the cantina, very generous guy, he wrote eight books, a charismatic, I mean, you know, really lovely guy who was shot dead. And many other stories. So, so I, I kind of don't want to give my own compare my own words to a lot of them in, in many ways but yeah sure there's been times there's one time in uh, it was in the state called Michoacan um, and this was 2014 uh, and there was a, a thing that happened there when a lot of regular people rose up with guns against the cartels they were known as outer defensas or like self-defense squads and they rose up to fight the cartels and uh, they, they, you know, a bunch of guys with guns. There was this kind of crazy situation where there was this like almost like a trench warfare happened between cartels and these self-defense groups. And then what happened was a lot of regular gangsters started saying, oh, we're self-defense groups as well. You know, we're just coming up saying, oh, yeah, we're self-defense groups. You know, those guys are out in the street with guns. You know, we're just going to go out with our guns. And So anyway, I went down, I drove down at the end of this. I've been, I've been covering this right through and it had been fairly okay to do. 
the self-defense squads, the outer defenses were pretty easy going to work with. But I drove down there to, to Michoacan um, and I wanted to do some stuff on it. And I was going to meet a, a friend on a journey. She just backed out at the last minute. I just went down there anyway and arrived there. And there was about 50 guys arrived in this place near the city called Apatzingan. And there was about 50 guys who were supposedly a self-defense squad in a parking lot getting ready to go on a mission to try and take down this drug trafficker called La Tuta. And they were like, they were sitting there, there was, a, there was a guy who was like signing them up for this kind of mission. And there was a bunch of guys, they were, and they had very heavy weaponry. They had AK-47s, they had AR-15s, they had grenade launchers um, on, their, on, their, on the top of their guns. Um, and beneath their guns, they had like the grenades strapped to them, like actually grenades like Jesus. on belts around them, ammunition belts around them. I mean, like crazy, like, you know, like you see like old revolutionary stuff, you know, I mean, like real crazy, like desperado stuff. Uh, and then uh, I was talking to them and I realized quickly these were not self-defense guys. These were narco. These were gangsters. I mean, they, you know, they, they <laughs> came out with it right away. They were like, um, you know, how long have you been in the self-defense, you know, movement? Oh, a couple of days. You know, and they were like, and then they had like guns with like diamonds and jefe. Um, what and, does jefe stand for? Uh, the boss. Um, and... Uh, and I was getting on okay with I was, I was kind of like, um, you know, joking with these guys and taking some photographs of them. So they were posing for photographs. So they were sitting there with, uh, like, posing with their guns and stuff. And they, were, and they said, they, they said they have a, the word huero is, is like, um, it's not really white boy, it's like blondie. You know, it could mean like, you know, if, if, if you're, you're white in Mexico, you often get called a huero. So like, huero, um, how much do prostitutes cost in your country? <laughs> That <laughs> was like a question. I was like, I don't know. You'd have to go there and see. And they're like, uh, "Where do you like take? Do you like taking meth? Do you like, you know, do you like, you like taking meth? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay." Uh, and they were, they were still like, you know, kind of joking. And this guy turned, came up among them, and he said, "The uh, to the other guys." Now, first there was a big guy, and he said uh, he was carrying a big gun. He's got a really massive head, and he said to me a bit aggressively, "Just don't take my photo." I was like, "Yeah, no problem. I won't take your photo." And then a guy came up and said to the other guy, saying, what are you doing? It's a DA guy here. It's a DA agent among you taking your photographs. Um, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, you know, I'm, not, I'm not even American. I'm British. And he said, no, no, you know, this is a DA guy. My, my, my brother was arrested in Texas and the DA guy pretended to be a journalist. You know, some bullshit story. And I said, look, I can, you know, I can show you my website. So they got the, the cell phone out and, and looked through the cell phone and, and found uh, my website. And the guy calmed down a bit and he said, you know, if, you, if I see you, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. I'm going to throw a grenade at you, <laughs> he added. So I left, you know, I kind of tried to talk a bit. I left and uh, yeah, and, and they went and then I didn't published the photographs I've still got you know, a bunch of the photographs and they, one of the guys sent me an email saying what happened to the photographs my emails on my website so I just ignored it and I think a lot of them got killed in a big fight they had with the federal police afterwards <sighs> so that was one um, and there's been yeah there's been a few more so it's a lot of touch and go when yeah. you're in these situations yeah the, the federal police do they have a plan to try to eradicate these mobs or is it a lot of lip service 
Like, is it really possible to eradicate these gangs, or is it just one of those things where they say they're going to do something, but they have to kind of protect themselves? You know, there's 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 been different different times. I mean, sometimes there's been the federal police have done well going after a particular guy, or sometimes with the Americans. You know, there's been uh, um, you know arrests of very many significant kingpins. The problem is as well is the or one of the deeper questions is that like uh, when you take down some of these kingpins, you've always got other people who will fight over their same territory. Mm. So, for example, you know, you take out Chapo Guzman and then you get a fight among his sons and some uh, one of his lieutenants over the, over the empire. Now, what's happened and one of the reasons the violence has increased in Mexico is because they've had this onslaught attacking cartels over the years, then you end up with like the lieutenants then taking over and then their lieutenants taking over and then their lieutenants taking over. That's what happened in Chicago as well. Right. I, I spoke to a police officer in Chicago and he said the violence escalated after some big gang arrests. Mm. And once they had gotten some leaders of some gangs and other people tried to fill the void. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, so then you get some of the people who are in, in power now are like very young, very violent people and people who are not as smart, right. not, as, not as mature. Not calculated. Yeah. So, so, you, so you, And also you end up with these they, they fragmented territories. So you have people controlling, rather than having big cartels, some leader who controls you know, half the country, you end up with these cartelitos, like these gangs controlling a part of a state. Now there's one state called Guerrero, which you've seen this really like cartel fragmentation. And you've got maybe 12 different groups in this one state. And you get like a place where they, you know, one controls it up uh, along a road and then another group controls it passing a certain point. So there were some f some friends went up there, um, seven journalists went up there and got held up on this road up there, 2017 as well. And they got, they were in a car going up there, two vehicles, and about 200 guys blocked the road. And the leader of this group was a guy, I believe, called El Huero Palaya. Um, like, again, this name, Blondie Palaya. And he's, like, maybe 23 years old, like 200 guys there. They said some of the kids, I talked to one of the friends who was there, and they said some of these saw kids who were as young as, like, 10 years old among this mob of people. And they, they, they held them up. They took away the one of the vehicles. They took away all their laptops, cameras, all of their equipment, stuck them in the car to go. Do you have to be careful when you're traveling that you don't have like a, an obviously expensive laptop or camera or something along those lines? I think from the point of view of his, you know, they can they can take it away. I mean, right. it's happened a lot of lot of cases recently of colleagues just being robbed. Um, I mean, you get like an armed group and they'll take away their basically they'll, they'll hold them down, take all their stuff. So you don't. Know. So I've got you know I know various colleagues, photographers. And if you're a freelance photographer, right, and you lose a good camera, uh, then. Uh, then you know, like you know, some of the TV people they have they have less expensive cameras than they used to. I remember a few years ago, a TV group uh, interviewed some gang members up in Honduras, and they stole their camera. And it was at that time it was like an eighty thousand dollar camera, and the TV network I don't want to say who it was the TV network apparently was more pissed about losing the camera <laughs> than it was about these guys you know getting held down and having, having guns pointed to them. <laughs> What is the attitude in Mexico, uh, especially amongst people who uh, are studying the narco wars? 
with all this uh, build that wall stuff, all this uh, what's going on in America. There's this this is very strange right versus left polarization over here about whether or not there should be a wall between yeah. the United States and Mexico. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, the thing where Mexicans are obviously very anti-Trump in Mexico is, is, is you know, Trump, you know, Trump is very unpopular from the very beginning, you know, when he said, you know, they are rapists. And murders, yeah. yeah. Someone's doing the raping, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's kind of, you know, if you look at surveys, the, the, the level's very low. Does anybody like Me- Trump in Mexico? Is there like I've there's never, always contrarians yeah, somewhere? I mean, I've, I've seen numbers like you know people say like I don't know eighty percent or something think he's terrible. So it means there must be a twenty percent somewhere who don't. I haven't met a Mexican who's been like pro-Trump. I, mm. never, I never have. I met a Salvadoran who was pro-Trump one time, and in, in he he the guy who'd been deported, and he was like, I know you you know this guy Trump's going to turn out to be a great president, so. So I, I see that, but no, Mexico is very, very anti-Trump. In terms of the wall, I mean, there's, you know, there's, in terms of what, uh, in terms of the smugglers, I was talking to a smuggler in Nogales about this, and he was describing, he, he'd smug, he was from Nogales, from a, a neighborhood called Buenos Aires, which is right on the border with uh, the United States. You know, it's Nogales, Sonora, Nogales, uh, Arizona. So Nogales, um, Sonora, yeah, Nogales, Arizona. And he was from the neighborhood right on the border there. And he described that he first took people over the border of the United States back in the 1980s when he was at school. He was at high school. And the reason was that at that time it was just an old fence. And there was a hole in the fence they used to go through into the United States and go back into Mexico. Just an old wire fence. And the first time he took people through, people would arrive from southern Mexico and say, you know, how do we get into the US? And he'd say, oh, you know, this way. And they give him a tip. He said the first time he got the equivalent of about 50 cents was what he made to take people into the United States, 50 cents. Nowadays, the cost of going into the US is $5,000. That's what you paid to go illegally into the United States, 5,000 bucks. So he's saying, wow, look at that increase. Every time that the US puts more security, it means it's more expensive. When it's more expensive, that means more money going to criminals, which means there's now an industry doing it. So now the cartels make a big percentage of that money of human smuggling into the US. Um, but like in terms of the wall, I mean, the uh, when, when Trump first came in, he had the line that Mexico's going to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, and and then there was this kind of line, you know, right at the beginning, he, you know, he threatened Mexican president saying, if you, if you don't agree to the pay for the wall then why are you going to come and meet me and then it was like wow he's really going to try and shake down mexico for like billions of dollars he's really going to try and do that uh and that was kind of scary moment then think from the point of view of mexico when he first got to power it was like he's going to do that and then he's going to deport three million and he's going to you know he's going to um kill nafta Actually, those things haven't really come to pass. Actually, if you look over the last couple of years of Trump, it hasn't really hit Mexico very hard. So the concern was that he was going to take money that should be allocated to other ways that's going to help Mexico, and he was going to try to take that and use it to build the wall? I, I mean, no one really knew. When he first came in, he's like, Mexico's going to pay for this wall? Right, the wall just got 10 foot higher, remember that? Yeah, yeah. and it was like, it was like you know, how are you going to do that? You're going you're gonna to start threatening Mexico militarily and say, give us money? I mean, it was kind of like a... Like is it, is it a shakedown? You can do a right. shakedown. It was kind of it was kind of a crazy diplomatic thing when he first got in. So that was kind of scary for a moment 
from the point of view of Mexico. But I think after you look at the last couple of years, he hasn't really hit Mexico with that. Now, if he wants to build the wall, now obviously there's, a, there's the big fuss in, in terms of the spending here. But if he wants to build it uh, or extend it, because there is wall in sections of the border already. If he wants to extend it, you know, it won't stop a lot of the hard drugs. Uh, I mean, if you look at heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, high-value drugs, they normally go through the ports of entry. Right. So Shipping. Yeah. I mean, they go th- or, or, or through, the, through the ports of entry, through like, uh, I mean, you have uh, through in cars. Right. Cars, trucks. I mean, you, you go through, if you look at um, the Laredos, Laredo, Nuevo Laredo. One of the reasons that was a big fight and the war started there in Mexico is because that's a very valuable territory. There's something like 8,000 trucks go over that border every day. Now, if you have 8,000 trucks, how many of those can you search in a day? And also the way they can hide this stuff in trucks, they can hide drugs in like a metal, they can put them in, in, in some kind of metal container, seal it up, solder it up, put a bunch of stuff so it doesn't smell. So somebody has to say, I'm going to open that with a blowtorch. I'm not just searching. I have to rip that vehicle apart right. to find the drugs. They were putting them inside wheels. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. In, in, yeah I mean, that's like inside tires, tires and so yeah. stuff. That's like, that's like, one of, that's like there's, there's song. There's a, a, that's one of the older tricks from the, like, the 70s. There's a song. There's a, one of the first narco corridos, the drug ballads. Um, it, it was called Contraband and, tre- and uh, Treason from the 1970s. And that was about hiring, uh, hiding marijuana back in, you know, in tires mm. back then. But yeah, I mean, now the, the trap cars now are like super sophisticated. They have some weird trap cars where you have to do like a bunch of stuff, like open the door, move some stuff to, to, actually, to actually open and find mm. the, the drugs. Oh, there's like some trick sort yeah, of yeah. door that has to be activated. Yeah, I would imagine if there's a will, there's a way. And there's mm. that much. I mean, I remember hearing that from I mean, it's not a reliable source, but from the Sopranos, mm. they were talking about only 20% of all the shipping containers that get brought into America get searched. Yeah. Well, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so to the, the hard drugs are going a lot of time through, on, through the, the, the ports of entry. Mm. And, and they have the, the, another classic trick they have is you get, they allow some to get busted. So you allow one guy to get busted. Mm. Um, they set somebody up. So they're taking some drugs through. They get, they get busted. All the F energies on them, and then meanwhile, more drugs are going through. And is this the United States border that's test that's catching this guy? Yeah, yeah. So they're not getting te- they're not getting tested in Mexico as they cross over, right? It's only the United States border. Yeah, some sometimes they might catch them in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, but the majority is going to be the United States. So, are the United States border patrol guys? Are they ever caught being corrupt? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's been cases of, of U.S. Uh, border patrol and uh, customs entry people who have been yeah caught taking a bunch of money, taking bribes, allowing you know allowing certain cars through. Of course, vehicles, certain vehicles through. So yeah, how does one fix this? I mean, if you had a magic wand, you were going to wave it over Mexico and fix this problem. Like if you, if somebody said. Yeah. Yohan, you're a smart guy. <laughs> You've been in the business for a long time. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to let you dictate how this takes place. So I'd say, yeah, three things. So like drug policy reform. So we've got to talk about how we deal with this drug situation. So, I mean, like America, I mean, I mean, I, the, some of that is, is here, isn't it? And, and yes. you, you probably got a better idea than me about how do, why, Ameri- why do Americans take so many drugs? I mean, I, I come from a drug taking community myself in mm-hmm. the UK, I guess. So maybe it's yeah. not that different. Well, I think there's a lot of answers to that. 
uh, the biggest one is in, entirely that most people don't enjoy what they do and they want an escape. I think that's probably the biggest mm. one. The there's some ridiculous number that was just uh, we're just who's discussing the number on the podcast of uh, how many people actually was it it was uh, Johan Hari wasn't it? Yeah, he was talking about the number of people that actually enjoy their job. Sixty seven percent people of in this country mm. don't like what they do, or you know, are just just sleepwalking through their life. There's uh, another significant percent that hate what they do. And then there's a, a few left over that love what they do. I mean, it's a very small number of people, maybe like myself or maybe like yourself, that actually enjoy what they do for a living and feel like they're following their passion. Most people are just working a job and they fucking hate it. And then when they get off work, they want to get fucked up. And a lot of these people, you know, they're, they have psychological issues. They're suffering from abuse, childhood abuse. They're trying to, I mean, there's been some significant statistics about childhood abuse and how many people from childhood abuse wind up using and abusing drugs and becoming addicted and even overdosing on drugs. And it's ridiculously high. It's about pain, pain and suffering and trying to remove that pain and suffering from your life. And, um, you know, people that don't know how to make healthy choices and don't have friends that are making healthy choices and don't know what to do with their life. That's a big, big part of it. There's another part of it that's because it's illegal. Mm. There's something about things that are illegal that are intoxicating and enticing. You know, when you um, look at the statistics in Holland in particular where marijuana has been, you know, you could buy it in coffee shops mm. forever. Not that many people smoke marijuana in Holland. Mm. It's a lot of uh, marijuana tourism. So especially back in the day, uh, now that America has legal marijuana almost everywhere, not a lot of people are going to Holland specifically to get fucked up. But that was always the thing, man. When we were younger, it was always like, "Yeah, he's gonna go to Holland, go get high." Like, <laughs> I, I, I went there. I used to go there when I was a teenager. I went, yeah. over, I went over there for some of that when I, on, on, a, on a boat uh, and arrived in Amsterdam uh, back in those days. Yeah, the uh, I mean, it, actually, it made me made me smile. Smile what you're saying just there about enjoying the job and it's true i mean when you said that um i do love what i do and enjoy what i do so that's you can one, tell that's yeah. one, of, one of the sides of that thing but uh but yeah so so i mean in terms of you know the, the issue of drugs we have to talk about this how how can we stop americans stop spending that money or allow that money if it's going to be spent not to be going to a black market uh, and, and destabilizing these countries but also a lot of issues in in mexico as well uh like again that social work how do you change the reality right and again, so, you know, people who are abused and suffer taking drugs, but people who are abused and suffer in Latin America becoming assassins. Yes. Because one of the weird things on a, on a moral level, on a level of morality, you know, I knew a lot of kids growing up who sold drugs. And it wasn't really an amazing immoral thing to think about. You know, I sell drugs. It was an easy step to take. I'm going to sell some weed and then I'm going to sell some speed and sell some ecstasy and then later on, you know, heroin or whatever. But for somebody to commit a murder, that seems like a bigger, you know, a lot bigger deal. How do you get into, yeah. how do you cross that line to becoming a murderer? How do they cross that line so easily? Well, I think it goes back to that young boy that you were talking about that butchered that family. He was abandoned and angry and hurt and just so much pain that he's suffering. That's often the case. They want other people to suffer. When when you see people that are doing terrible things to people, they're almost always suffering. Mm. They're almost almost always wanting other people to feel what they feel. They're lashing out. That's uh, that that social work aspect that you're discussing so critical and it's something that we've discussed about this country. 
that how few people are putting i mean how and very few politicians very few uh, people that are running this country are putting efforts into trying to heal these communities that have suffered from just years and years of systemic racism, years and years of just embedded poverty that's almost impossible to escape, years and years of crime and drugs and just growing up in this community of despair. Mm. This is what we were talking about with Baltimore. This is what we're talking about with South Side of Chicago and various cities all over this country. It just They don't get better, man. They, mm. they stay fucked up. You know, um, I had Michael Wood, who is a uh, police officer from Baltimore, and he was discussing what it was like being in Baltimore as a police officer and then looking at some documents from the 1970s that detailed the crime in the very same areas that he was patrolling in. And this, the same crime in the same areas and this sense of just overwhelming futility, like there was nothing that he was going to be able to do that was going to put a dent in this because this was a lot of it was a product of I mean, these areas in Baltimore where there was law that you were not allowed to sell homes to black people in these mm. certain areas. So they kept these people in these poor areas. And even though they had this desire to escape into the, the more affluent or safer communities, they weren't allowed to for a long time. I mean, there's so much of that in this country that the you know the people that are in control but everybody just wants to get elected everybody just wants to you know and then once they get elected then they're looking to get reelected so they spend a gigantic percentage of their time campaigning no there's no universal effort on the part of all the citizens of the country to try to look at all these areas and say hey these are uh, this is us you know, just because you don't live in the south side of Chicago, that, those are human beings. Those are just like you and I. You could have been them. They could have been you. If, if they were you and you were them, wouldn't you hope that you would help? Wouldn't you mm. hope that someone would come in and try to fix this area? Someone would try to pour money. We pour so much money into foreign countries. We pour so much money into subsidizing various industries that a lot of people disagree with. You know, and there's, I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't know what economic sense that on any of that stuff makes, but I do know that money is allocated in a lot of different ways. And the idea is that it's going to be better for all of us. Well, it's not better for all of us to keep these communities as fucked up as they are right now. Mm -hmm. And no, there's no effort, nothing, very little done, no movement, no change, no gigantic step, no, no 10 year plan to eradicate gang violence, no 10-year plan to eradicate illegal drug sales and murder. So the, the, this great social work, there are some great social workers down there, and so there are some heroes in these places. Um, there's somebody I talk to a lot based in Sierra Juarez, a uh, woman called Sandra, who grew up in this neighborhood. She was one of the first people who introduced me to young gang members in this, in this area. Um, she used to work in a factory there, got into social work, now she's a psychologist. Uh, and yeah, she, I mean, she's somebody who, who really will do the work and reach people and, and will like save lives. Um, and, you know, some of the you know, basic stuff you really get in the community and try and reach. And you have to reach the kids when they're often 12, 11, 12. And you can often see in these areas who are the kids who are going to get into this, who are going to be recruited by the cartels, right. who are going to get to gangs. Because there's certain profiles in these people. They haven't got their families. I was talking to some guys in, in also in Sierra Juarez from the Barrio Azteca, which is the, one of the big gangs there. It started in the U.S. actually among prisoners and spread into Mexico and became almost like a paramilitary group in Mexico about how they recruit people. And this guy was saying, like, you know, we, we'll see, you know, I can see from these young kids who's going to be able to kill and, you know, who's going to be a real fighter and who's not. And if these people have got, you know, parents who love them and so forth, these guys aren't going aren't to 
they're not going to work for me. Right. I need I need someone who's like got hate, who's got yeah. that anger in them, and I can right. I can do something with one of those. So it's kind of like the perverse opposite of this stuff, really. But so if people don't have that families, and and, and this makes me I guess think a bit more sympathize i guess as well to you know the the idea of how how important family is yeah how important loving parents is you know whether you're together or separate you know loving parents you know uh, having that and uh uh but if you don't have that you know you need social work and need people who are going to offer something and try and now there, there was a, an interesting mayor of medellin called andres guajado and he had these ideas of trying to change the reality of the city and he said i'm going to build the most he said he was a mathematician so i'm going to see this as a mathematical problem this issue and I'm going to build the most beautiful building in the ugliest part of the city in the worst part of the city to make and force people who want to see so we made a, a conservatory and put it in the in the poorest neighborhood so that people who want to be in this conservatory have to travel to the poorest neighborhood and go there mm. and try and change the reality because if you see around you a horrible neighborhood a dirt street no light nothing working you know what do you turn into and if you see a nice environment around you can you change people that way? Wow, how did it work? You know, it worked for a while. It's hard to know exactly because also there was a a truce between some of the gangsters there as well for a while. Um, was it related to the construction of the conservatory? I, 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 it might have, I don't know if the government was involved in the truce or, truce or not, but there was for a time the murder rate did drop quite dramatically in Medellin. Um, and I don't know if people have carried on, you know, but Medellin has improved. I mean, Medellin, Medellin Colombia was the worst the most violent city in the world back in the 1990s and it's it's not you know and it's you know people do like their city now in medellin wow so it had some impact yeah absolutely yeah then the social workers i'm sure they have some impact on individual people but i would imagine that the overwhelming volume of children that are being recruited that's very hard to put a real dent in it well i think in Ciudad Juarez it had an effect because when that was the most violent city in the world around 2010 2011 and there was this turf war there between the Sinaloa cartel, which is Chapo Guzman, against a uh, local Juarez cartel. And there was, was 9,000 killed in that city over four years of that, of that war. It was crazy. I was covering, wow. it. I was covering it then, and just driving around from scene to scene. It'd be like, you know, massacre here, massacre there, just driving around, bang, bang, this thing's happening. And afterwards, there was a lot of social work put into the city. Um, and Sandra described right then. She said, "There's, there's a, um, a, a like a waterfall of, of aid money coming in. There was like US, you know, USAID and stuff would start putting money into this, and other different groups. And the, the murder rate did really drop. So, and it hasn't gone back up to that level since. So, I think it does have a real effect when it's put as a policy. Um, you know, it does have an effect on these things." Um, but also, when I mean, you, you talked a, a little while ago about a magic wand on this, I mean, in making a police force that actually protects the community or making a police force that has some kind of effect. I mean, I grew up in England, which is, you know, a pretty safe place relatively, and I used to not like police and, you know, hate, you know, be anti-police or whatever growing up. Um, and now I appreciate, wow, you know, you have police who actually protect the community in some way. And the same in the United States. I mean, the United States the police do protect people to a large extent compared to these countries. And, you know, obviously there's issues here. There's an issue with racism and killing and violence and so forth. But still, I think a lot of the people who, who believe that they're, you know, a lot of people believe they have guns for self-defense. And I respect the right to have guns to, for self-defense. 
But really in America, you're generally safe because the police are pretty hard on clamping down. But how do you create a police force which really has the will to protect people? You know, how do you have that you know, uh, with, the, with the, the will and the passion and the commitment to help people? in Mexico, that would be that'd be a dream. The people that have dealt with police officers that are corrupt have a very difficult time hearing what you're saying, right? The, the, those people would be angry at what you're saying, saying, no, 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 the police officers here are corrupt, they are bad, there is racism, there are real mm. problems. Yeah. Um, and there is, but I think there's also a real problem being a police officer, period. I think police officers have a, an insanely difficult job, and I think most of them are dealing with PTSD. I think there's a giant percentage of them, like, all over the world and in America too that are constantly dealing with violence and the threat of violence and arresting criminals and being shot at and people lying to them. I just don't think, I, I think most people are very ill-equipped to handle something like that. I mean, I agree there's, there, there, are, there are definitely problems with the police and there are problems. I mean, the police shootings are re very real problems. Uh, police killing innocent people here is very real. Uh, and you've always got to look for improvement. And, you know, there's people, families, again, suffering from that from that violence. And I don't want to belittle their story. No, no, you're yeah. not. I know you're but, not. I just have to sort of clarify because yeah. I know so many people will be hearing this and going, yeah, Mexico's terrible. But yeah. The United States, there's, I mean, yeah. there's a ton of videos. The real yeah. issue, though, is we're also dealing with the, the sheer number yeah. of interactions that police have with people. Yeah. The, the vast majority of them are fine. Yeah, but I was going to say on the, other, on the other thing, like say the crime of kidnapping. Kidnapping is a horrific uh, antisocial crime. I mean, a horrific crime that destroys lives. Um, there's one video, uh, really video which really made me sick, um, which was given to a family of a kid, like a 14-year-old kid, who was taken, and they were, they sent this video to his family in Mexico, and they were beating this kid and saying to this kid, you know, this is this, and, and the guy was saying to the camera, this is your fault, you bitch, to the mum. This is your fault. Look how your kid's getting beaten. Now you're going to give me the money. It's asking for like, uh, was it $300,000? It's asking for the time. Um, and those kind of crimes, now kidnapping doesn't happen in the United States on a very big level because you've got effective law enforcement. So some, I mean, they, I, mean I, was, I was at one conference and there was, you know, a real nice, real nice guy, but there was people calling for the abolition of the police and there shouldn't be a police force. Saying you really want to live like with no police you really want to live with a dysfunctional police where they can just kidnap your kid and like send a video to you like that and you've got no protection from that kind of thing right i mean there's definitely problems here but also you've got to see the the, the other side of having a completely dysfunctional police uh force and what that means there's just such a staggering difference between the united states and mexico in that regard mm -hmm. in the regard to gang violence drug violence just overall murders and the stories that we hear from over it's so different the fact that you could just draw a little line in the dirt you cross that line you're in hell and then you cross this line you're in houston <laughs> i mean that's fucking crazy yeah yeah i i mean again i mean i get criticized sometimes from I met, you know, sometimes Mexican government sources or Mexican tourism sources, you know, like I'm covering this stuff. So you know, I'm showing the worst um, and it can give a distorted picture sometimes because, you know, when I tell a story of 49 decapitated bodies with their hands and feet cut off, people think, wow, you know, as soon as you say this stuff and some guy describing decapitating people, this kind of does, um, you know, knock people out. So, I, you know, I don't want to say as well as that, it still is a great country. Yeah. Um, I still, you know, I love the United States. Um, but I, I probably love Mexico more. And 
What do you love more about Mexico besides the food? Uh, I mean, I would say generally the atmosphere is good. I just feel uh, feel people are nice generally. I mean, despite all of this horrific violence. Do you think it's because they don't have the same sort of uh, ruthless ambition that people in the United States have? I think there is a sense. We were talking before about why people are into drugs. And one thing that occurred to me is this kind of hyper-competitiveness of society. And people can feel like failures. Like if you feel like a failure, if you feel like, I guess well, maybe social media is affected this as well because you see what people have and you expect you should have more. Right. And you feel you haven't lived up to it. I think in Mexico, people, you know, if you're broke in the United States, you can, you can often maybe feel like a personal failure. How come you're living in America and you're broke? Right. Um, whereas in Mexico, lots of people are broke. So you like, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, you don't feel that same kind of personal failure with that. I, when I'm there, one thing that always strikes me is how happy people seem. And that I think there's a certain stress level that a lot of Americans put themselves into where they're constantly pursuing material possessions, material wealth and success. And that oftentimes this leads to really exacerbated stress levels. And it's not, it doesn't make you happy. Like the whole idea of having things in our mind is uh, someday if I buy this car, I'll be happy. If I live in this neighborhood, I'll be happy. And then so they work 12 hours a day to try to achieve that dream and they're never happy. And they're always stressed out. And even though the vast majority of the United States, I mean, there's some insane number like 34, if you make more than $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. Mm. So there's a giant percentage of this country that's in the top 1% of the world, yet the overall happiness level, at least from what I've read, is quite a bit below the people in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of these things, I mean, how, yeah, how do you see your own happiness or measure your own happiness or sense of, of success or failure? Uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's part of it. I mean, uh, um, yeah, and the food is great. The food is, the food is, the food is I'm amazing. I'm a giant fan of Mexican food. <laughs> yeah. I love it. There's a place down here that I, I take the guys here that work here all the time. It is as Mexican as you get. No one speaks English there. They have uh, Mexican soap operas playing on the television, and the food is just sensational. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. So, um so, so some of these things as well as that, but but before you're talking about this border between Mexico and the U.S., yeah, it's it's a huge, um, is that vast difference between countries and, and cultures, and and the interaction. Another issue, I guess, is the issue of guns going south, and we talked about all about the mm -hmm. drugs coming up. You've also got a lot of firearms, a lot of firearms, like that Fast and Furious deal. Yeah. The Eric Holder thing that yeah. went down years ago where they sold, it was some sort of a sting, yeah. and they sold guns, and those guns wound up being used to kill Americans and even American police officers. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was, so the ATF um, were going after this, and there's, I mean, the number of guns, no one's really sure how many guns are going down, but there was one study that, uh, that came to the conclusion that about two, over 200,000 guns every year go from the United States into Mexico. Wow. So that that is an that's an insane number. Two hundred thousand guns. And I interviewed a guy in prison in Ciudad Juarez for gun trafficking. And he would drive every weekend from Mexico up to the United States um buy like ten to fifteen, um mostly AR fifteens, some other guns as well, and drive them down into into Mexico. And it's pretty easy to get into Mexico. 
So you drive them in, it's like it's, it's, it's uh, a piece of piss. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very easy. You Basically, most of the time, you've got no control. Now, he would actually hide them in fridges and in stoves and would pay an import tax for the fridges and stoves. Mm. But, but he was buying them, and he said, he said to me, so I said, how did you buy the guns? He said, I would no idea. So what idea did you show to buy your guns? He said, oh, nothing at all. He said, no idea whatsoever. He said, no, no, nothing at all. So he buy them from gun shows? So he buy them from gun shows, but then what he would do was he would use the private sale loophole, which they're, they're trying to close now. Yes. So he would go in there, and then I went to, the gun, to a gun show in, in Mesquite in the greater Dallas area, known as the gun show capital of America, mm. and went to a gun show there and asked you know, people, can you sell me guns? You know, I don't live here. Can you sell me guns? And... First, they said, oh, no, you need to be a Texas resident. Some said, oh, yeah, sure, I can sell you these guns. And it was the reason they get out is they say it's a private sale. Right. However, some of them, and I know some of the, the, the pro-gun people get angry talking about this, but I saw this with my own eyes. They've got a whole bunch of boxed-up AR-15 rifles, and they're selling them as being private sellers. So yeah. Private sale. Now, so he was just, just simply buying these guns and taking them down. And I saw right in front of me as well somebody who 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 said to the person i can't i can't buy was looking for a different gun and said no i can't buy it i don't have i, I can't use id to buy the gun um and the person you know still happy like even the private sale loophole if, if you in theory if you suspect the person is a criminal mm-hmm. or was using for criminal purposes you shouldn't sell them the gun but they don't care and so one thing, I mean, you really want, do people really want people who they could, they could be MS-13, undocumented, they can still walk in and buy guns in some of these places. Um, but then, yeah. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a big issue as well. That, yeah, those uh, gun shows are pretty bizarre. Yeah. You're walking around with a bunch of people just itching to shoot somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like They're just hoping somebody breaks in their house. I know a guy who keeps a gun on his ankle at all times. He keeps one in his back. He's got a, a he's got a holster that he carries with him. Sometimes he carries a knife as well. I mean, he's b- literally begging for someone to fuck with him. Mm. I, I mean, I mean, I, I've got no problem with the people who like. Uh, who, you know, I, I talked to a guy from the Alaska Machine Gun Association. <laughs> <laughs> he had a, he, 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 has, he has about two hundred guns in his his basement. Two hundred guns. Wow. Uh, and. And I don't have a problem with with uh, with people with doing that, but then there's still like, how do you stop the guns going to criminals? The same, right. the gun, the criminals in in Baltimore. Right. Um, I also interviewed in Baltimore a gun trafficker who was taking guns into the city of Baltimore. The yeah, the gun show loophole is very strange. It's very strange that that's allowed. And this is coming from someone, me personally, who owns guns, mm. and I believe in the Second Amendment. And mm. I just. I don't think that the way to stop people from doing illegal activities is to make those activities illegal for people who don't do anything illegal. You know, I think the the real issue is the psychology behind people that are willing to shoot people in the first place and to deal with the overall mentality of these human beings and try to figure out what's wrong with our society. Cure it at a base level, at a, at a human level. That's what's really wrong. It's not the inanimate object of a gun that's the problem. It's the human beings that are willing to use these guns to commit horrific acts. That's what I think. But when you have something like drug cartels, which exist, or gangs, which exist, and then you have this thing called a gun show, and then you have this gun show loophole, well, boy, you got a fucking giant hole in your dam. Mm. You know, you got water pouring right through right there. Like, how do you not fix that up? If you are 
a person who believes in the Second Amendment, you believe in legal and responsible gun use, you should be angry at that because mm. that is that represents a gigantic problem and that also represents a threat to legal gun ownership because if this keeps happening and people keep getting outraged and more mass shootings happen with illegally acquired guns after a while you know there's there's it's going to come to some sort of a, a real conflict with people yeah i'm actually doing a, a new book about gun trafficking mm. um so i'm really interested to hear about these issues and, and what the actual room for compromise is or like we know or like what someone like yourself who believes in the Second Amendment, how much room for compromise do you think there is in on these issues? I mean, like closing the gun show loophole. The other thing, like, for example, the issue of 50 cals. Yeah. Now, 50 cals in Mexico, the cartels, the cartels use 50 cals. They use them to set up ambushes. They use them to hit uh, military vehicles, police vehicles. So they'll, they'll, they'll set, sit on the side of a mountain and there are 50 cows and go bang, bang, and like go right yeah, through. They're like baseball-sized bullets. It's yeah. crazy. Now, imagine if you are Not quite that big, but yeah. they're big-ass bullets. Now, now yeah, and I, and I understand, obviously, a lot of these Mexican police and military are corrupt as well, but, you know, if you are an honest one or whatever, you're going in a, in a car and you start getting hit by one of those going into your vehicle, then they open up on you. Yeah. So is there any room there, do you think, for, like, um, clamping down on 50 cows? I've never heard that discussion that much. I have a friend who has one. Anthony, yeah. Anthony Cumia, he's got a fifty caliber. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's cr- I mean, the idea that you're using that for self-defense, unless mm. you're going to war with Russia mm. or you know fighting against some gang, cartel gang that's uh, invading your city, that seems that's a military weapon. Mm. I mean, it's the same argument I think for uh, having a, a fighter jet with Hellfire missiles. Mm. Do I think you should be able to own a Cessna and fly mm. a, a little pr- plane around? Sure. Okay. Do I think you should be able to own a jet? Well, I mean, there are a lot of rich folks with private jets. Okay. Do I think you should be able to own a fighter jet that goes the speed of sound? Oh, I mean, it's just a faster jet, right? Yeah, okay, okay. Do you think you should be able to own a fighter jet with 50 caliber guns strapped to it? Oh, well, what the fuck is that? Are you starting a war? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) There's like these levels that things get to, you know? Um, that's, that's, this is the argument against a t- automatic weapons. Like you can't use automatic, like certain states have regulations in terms of what you can. And, you know, in California, you can't even have a silencer. Mm. Um, I don't know why, because it's very bad to have that loud bang of a gun. It's terrible for your ears. And if you're a hunter or, or someone who likes to shoot target practice or something, that's a terrible thing for your ears. And there's a suppressor that they could put on the end of the barrel and it'll mitigate that. But for whatever reason, I think mostly because of films and public perception, people think that those silencers are only used by assassins or something like that, mm. that you're using to kill people. So, so they, they they convert the the semi-automatics from the states in Mexico. They convert them to fully automatics. Yes. So they they, they, they do that here too. And then of course you know about bump stocks. Yeah. 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 Which which makes it much more um, free with the trigger, much much easier to fire rapidly rather. So how do you feel about the issue? You know, one of the issues is um, of having a, a, a database mm-hmm. like the um, ATF, or, or they're not allowed to have a searchable database on on guns in the United States. So yeah. they have like they have like paper files and stuff they go through still. They can't have like a digital database on guns. That seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you think they think? I mean, I guess the the, the the gun lobby see the idea of a gun registry as being a step to taking away their guns because, um, like once you start registering, then you can go then afterwards and say, well, we know where the guns are yeah. or whatever. But how do you feel? Do you think there's flexibility on that issue of like the gun 
of like having searchable databases. I mean, like with a car, like you have a license plate and if there's a hit and run, you yes. just type it in and you know whose car it is within seconds. With gun tracing, you can't, you know, you find a gun at a crime scene, whatever, you can't just trace, you know, put a button and you're going to bang, that's who right. it is. They have to go through paper, they have to go through a whole formal trace mm -hmm. and go through this kind of search. Do you think there's flexibility on that issue as well, or, or how do you feel about that yourself? Well, I myself feel there should be a traceable database. Mm. Uh, I mean, if there, it's just like a car, and I'm glad you brought up that analogy, because when you, when you get a car, you have to know how to drive a car. You have to, in order to have a license to drive a car, you have to take a test. Mm. You have to take a written test, and you have to take a physical driving test with an instructor. They have to... See, and think about how many more people drive cars than own guns. Mm. So it's possible to do this with guns, yet it's not done. Mm. When I bought my first gun, they're like, here you go. I was like, what? Like, that's it? Like, yeah, you're not a criminal. Look, mm. we did a, che a check on you. You're not a criminal. Here's a gun. And I bought a pistol. I bought a, a 38 revolver. That was my first gun. Mm. And I went to the, the gun range and practiced with the gun. And I, I read about how to do it. And I talked to an instructor about safety and put goggles on and earmuffs and, you know, make sure you're protected and how to properly hold the gun while you shoot it and all these different things. But uh, it's stunning to me that you don't have to do that. Mm. I mean, you can own 150 guns and know how to operate zero of them, and they're all yours. You, you, you don't even have to prove you know what the fucking safety is. You don't have to prove you know anything. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. I mean, I admit it's fun to shoot guns. I mean, yeah. and, I, and since I've been doing research for this new pickup, I've been shooting a few guns in places. I, w I went over to Serbia, and I arrived in Serbia on a hangover. I'd seen my friends in the UK and got drunk with them. And I arrived in a hangover, and I'd, I'd met uh, the contact there and said I wanted to go to a gun club. And he took me into a nuclear bunker and fired an AK-47, just <laughs> came, off, came off the plane. Wow. And so, yeah, and it was like, wow, they, they had a crazy, they said, whatever you want to fire, they had a crazy amount of guns there. So I, I can see it's, it's, it's fun to fire these things. Do you think they actually are good in self-defense? I mean, do you, do you actually think, I mean, I, I don't, you know, in Mexico, I don't have guns. Um, I, don't, I, I wouldn't, um, when I travel in the field, um, I won't go with security. Um, they generally, security is going to be more of a hindrance um, because they attract yeah, attention, yeah, attract attention, um, yeah. and they've got to go basically with my hands up and say, "Look, this is this is me. This is what I'm doing." Um, most of the situations there, you've got to have a lot of people with heavy guns. You're not going to outgun these guys. Yes, in Central America, it was a bit different. In Honduras, there was with guys with guns there, not out of choice uh, of, of choosing security because the, the, the journalist himself was carrying a gun um, and had friends carrying guns, and he, and he was carrying a mini Uzi. He was driving with this journalist friend of mine. Orlean Castro, his name is great, great journalist. He was driving around and he had a mini Uzi um, on, on his lap as he was driving around to crime scenes and running around doing stuff. Mm. Um, but do you, do you think guns are actually effective for self-defense? I mean, do you have guns for self-defense and believe in that or simply just enjoy the sport of shooting guns? Well, I hunt and uh, one of the things I have used, although I archery hunt now, most, mm. of, the, most of the hunts I go on when I when I go to these places to uh, to bow hunt specifically. Uh, but I have rifles for hunting. Um, I have handguns for self-defense. And it depends entirely on the situation. That's like saying, do you think cars are effective to get you where you want to go? Mm. Well, they are effective if you drive carefully and you, you know, use the blinkers and look when you change lanes and, you know, make sure you observe the speed limit and all the different laws and are aware and don't crash into anybody. But if you're an asshole, 
No, they're not effective. You're going to wind up dying in a car accident. You're going to mm. flip your car over on the side of the road. Um, if you're in a terrible situation, it is better to have a gun than to not have a gun if you mm. know how to use it. Mm. If someone's breaking into your house, there has been there is countless stories of people protecting their families from mm. from bad guys when they have guns. They mm. d these are real stories. They do exist. There are people that I've talked to. They you, you can find them. Mm. There's countless stories there's also countless stories of people leaving their guns uh unlocked and a, ch a child gets a hold of it and kills himself accidentally there's there's stories of chi children accidentally killing their mothers there's, there's all those stories too so can a gun be effective in self-defense for sure hmm. that's why the military use them that's why police officers use them that's why p people train and they go to the range and they take tactical courses to learn how to use a gun for self-defense absolutely a gun can be used for self-defense it's the best thing hmm. for the best tool for self-defense other than you know obviously living in a good neighborhood having a, 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 a security alarm all these different steps a dog dogs are good especially a dog that's a trained dog. But yeah, guns absolutely can protect you. If you're in a situation and someone breaks in your house and you shoot that person dead, that's, you, you're safer mm. than that person killing you. That has happened. Mm. But it's a, this is a, I mean, this is a gross generalization that's an entirely dependent upon the situation that you find yourself in. Mm. But if you're, not, if you're not protected by, uh, if, if you don't understand how to use it, if you're not trained if you don't if you don't have training to keep your shit together when things go south because when you're in a situation and your life is in danger if you've never been in a high pressure situation before how do you know you can keep it together and even hit something you're aiming at people have wild trigger panic mm. and they they have a really hard time dealing with life or death situations if they haven't served in the military or been in some very very high stress situations where you have to learn how to control yourself under extreme pressure conditions mm. there's a lot there's a lot of factors there but i would say the same thing is like you, you would also say that with martial arts. Like, can you defend yourself if you know martial arts? Well, pfft, depends on what you know. I mean, some martial arts are fucking horseshit. You, 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 there's a lot of people out there practicing nonsense, and if someone who actually knew how to fight just punched them in the face, they would be doomed. And then there's other people out there that are experts that would be very calm if someone tried to fight them, and they would know what to do and what not to do, and if the person wasn't armed, they would be able to easily dispatch them. It really is dependent upon the situation, how much effort you've put into it, how much thought you've put into it. And, but there's a lot of people out there that if you broke into their house, you're making a huge mistake because they're trained and prepared and ready because they don't want to be a victim. And it doesn't mean they're bad people. And I think we, we have a problem in this country where we look at things, they're very binary. They're one or zero. They're mm. good or bad. Guns are bad. Guns mm. are always bad. I don't want a gun. gun, gun bad guys take your gun sometimes. Sure, sometimes. Sometimes you kill the bad guy and you protect your family, though, too. That's real, mm. too. Mm. Yeah, no, I have respect for people having, having guns for self-defense. When we're talking about, about shooting, I've been around a, a few shootouts in, in Latin America and, uh, and over in Haiti. And one thing about that from, from a journalist's point of view and, and being around that, and I've been seeing a lot of violence as well, a lot of people fighting, um, even going back to England, people having physical fights um, or, or with knives and that kind of thing. So one of the differences, I think, with guns is, and it's funny, you can't see bullets. It's such, a, it's, such a, it's such like a small thing, but like 
you can't see the thing that's hurting you. When you see a guy with a knife, right. it's like the guy's scary. You can see, you can imagine that knife sticking into you. But the gun is like you're seeing, you know, the object. You can't see really the, the, the bullet going in. So one of the times, I, one of the times actually I was in Haiti and uh, I, I went there to cover the earthquake in 2010, um, which was, you know, real sad, you know, like crazy amount of dead there. And we were covering the looting um, afterwards. And the police came and started firing right into where people were, were looting. And I was with a cameraman. And the police were firing, bang, bang. And, then, then, and during the same situation, not, not right in that scene there, but in another scene, they, they shot and killed somebody, the police just firing at the looters. And all the looters started running. When the police were firing, they were firing. Again, were they, how high were they firing? But they were firing, you know, bang, firing these police down. And the cameraman I was with was just sat there and he was like filming this. And I think this is one of the problems that why a lot of cameramen get shot in these places. You start feeling like you're watching it on TV. Oh, wow. Because you feel like, you know, you're sitting there lezzing, wow, this is amazing. Look at, what, look at what I'm watching. Yeah. And you're seeing this and it's like, not saying that, run, we've got to go, like they're firing. It was like, it's like, we've got to go. He wants to get the shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we've got to go. Um, now there's, a, there's another sad, um, sad thing of, of, of a, of a Guy filming, an uh, American journalist called Bradley Roland Will, uh, you know, rest in peace, who was killed in Mexico back in 2006. And he was filming a shooting in the state of Oaxaca. And he filmed these, these guys shooting and he fell and was hit and it carried on filming. So oh, he wow. li literally filmed his own death. I mean, you can literally, literally see there. Um, yeah, sad. I was working for a news agency when that, that day when he was he was killed in yeah there's uh, a lot of courageous camera people and you know they get locked into that job and it becomes normalized almost like you were saying the people that live in these war-torn areas it becomes a normal way of life to them and although there are a lot of murders if you're there on a daily basis it seems like almost like a regular life a lot of these cameramen, I mean, they're courageous people. You see these guys who go over to war zones and mm -hmm. film what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, and I've met some of these guys. That's just, it's a crazy way of life to just accept the fact that you're an observer that might be a victim and you're capturing all this so people like me can get a, some semblance of a perception to what's going on in that mm -hmm. part of the world. I went over to the Philippines, southern Philippines, uh, and saw the fight against the Islamic State there. Uh, in end of 2017. And it was interesting seeing that compared to the violence I cover normally in, in Mexico. So that was ISIS. They took over the city called Marawi. And it was an area they called it, it was, it was interesting, it was more self-contained. They had a, an area called the Main Battle Area, the M MBA, I think, Ma Main Battle Area. So in that area was ISIS and the Philippine army just going at it all the time, just like constant bang, 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 bang. And planes going over and bombing. But actually, even when you're outside that main area, even if you're, you know, we were just outside it, and even if you're like 600 meters or 600 meters from it, but it's, you're not in the fighting. The fighting is over there. Whereas in something like Mexico, South America, a lot of times this fighting is kind of happening everywhere. There's no real control over where, in the, where the main battle area is. But they, they didn't really let any journalists inside, like deep into the main battle area. They didn't really let any journalists in. We we're sitting outside and hearing just constant ricochet of gunfire and but sometimes bullets would come out of the area so there was an australian guy 
and I think he bent over to pick up some cookies and a bullet hit him in the neck. Oh. Um, I saw the x-ray, actually, of the bullet embedded in the side of his neck. And actually, it, t- it was taken out. And he was so like, it must have been at the end of its terminal velocity. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it must have been a far, far, far shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, or that, it went through something else before it hit him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he so he maybe didn't go in too fast. That's, that's crazy. That's why I didn't, yeah, exactly. So it was kind of a... a He's st- okay? Yeah, I think he was, he was okay. <laughs> he was okay with it. Yeah. Boy, that guy's lucky. Yeah. Gets shot in the neck and you're okay. Yeah, so, but um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, some of the people have really been in... Uh, um, there was, they, they had a, one of the guys, um, one of the police special force guys had a camera on his helmet and he went, he, he showed me that footage and he was right there, right inside there, going there like really, really close buildings fighting with the Islamic ISIS people. And it was the same techniques. I talked to the general and he had a big chart showing how the techniques of guerrilla warfare had evolved from like Fallujah, Aleppo, Mosul, and how this kind of weird new form of guerrilla warfare they have of like fighting house to house. Mm. Um, so they, I mean, basically it's, it's suicidal kind of guerrilla war. They rise up and they'll be like, you know, super close, fighting really close. So it was, and then when they're born, they'd hide in like, you know, basements and stuff. And they, they drill holes in the wall so they can fire through and fire through. And the footage he had, he showed me the footage he had from being like right inside, close up, like running literally in the room, bang, taking these people out. And it was like, wow, this is just crazy. I was trying to persuade the guy to let me put that footage out there. You know, it looked like it looked like a kind of crazy video game, kind of Call of Warfare. Oh. Sorry, Call of Warfare is that called? Call, um, Call, Call of, of Call Duty. of Judy. Call of Judy. Call of Judy. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Mexico right now is almost like a war. I mean, you can call it a drug war, but because there's no, it's not like an army versus army war. We don't think about it that way, but. From in terms of the amount of violence that goes on over there and the amount of casualties, it rivals anything that's going on in the world right now. Yeah, so I've been talking a lot about this over the years and, and with some like experts. There's a good writer called uh, Robert Bunker, who's an external researcher for the Pentagon, and he investigates this stuff. There's a guy called John Sullivan from here in California, who was a police officer who also um, did a bunch of research and you know got like a doctorate in in, in, in studying a lot of this stuff as well. Talk to them about their ideas about what this means. You know, what is the, uh, um, how can you define this in terms of, of warfare? You know, how, how does it fit in? Uh, and they directed me to one uh, book by an Israeli historian called The Transformation of War. And this was written back in the early 1990s. And he basically predicted then you're going to see a transformation in, in, in war, an armed conflict around the world. And, you know, we have like nuclear weapons, um, but they're useless in these situations. Now, nuclear weapons, you can't use a nuclear weapon to solve the problem in Mexico. You can't use a nuclear weapon to deal with the Islamic State. Uh, you know, these are internal insurgencies in countries. So if you look at, at Mexico, it's a kind of weird hybrid. So, so between crime and war. So I use the word mm. crime wars in some of these places, mm. say like Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras where you have, I mean, there are some situations in Mexico where, it, you, know, the, you know, there was a group who called the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Some of their guys shot down a military helicopter using an RPG-7. Wow. Uh, um, they killed eight soldiers and a federal policeman in that helicopter. 
there was one shootout which involved 2,000 federal police and 500 sicarios, like 500 cartel hitmen had this crazy battle <sighs> in Michoacan. Wow. So, so sometimes you actually get, actually starts to look more like a kind of regular conflict, but generally it's all, you know, way, way more kind of hybrid. So it's kind of weird mix. And so I was trying to get my head around this for a long time. For some years I was trying to think, you know, is this a civil war? Right. Should we look at this? And then it becomes, okay, this, and then it was, you know, Robert Bunker when he, when I talked to him one time and he said, you know, like the, this doesn't fit into these theories. You know, it's not quite war. It's more than crime. It's a weird hybrid in between. Um, to kind of crime war, and that's the way you got to understand these these things. But a lot of the the conflicts around the world today, these are spreading. I mean, you look at Somalia, you look at Libya, you look at a lot of these places. The kind of weird mix, instability. Yeah. And then this is what a lot of refugees are fleeing from. And uh, I was down in um, Tijuana um, at Christmas. I followed the migrant caravan that came through uh, Mexico of Central Americans. You know, which caused a big uh, big storm here that mm -hmm. Trump kind of hit yeah. him before the election. What was that like? Was that overblown? Uh, I think it was a big deal. Um, was it a publicity event? Like, is that why they were doing it and making it such a big deal and everybody's walking towards the border? Like, uh, there was a bit more than that. I, th I think there, uh, there was, um, there, these caravans had started a few years ago uh, and they started off in Mexico for security. Um, there was an issue back a few years ago where the cartels would kidnap migrants on mass they would just get loads of migrants now you think these people are poor how can they make money from them but they'd get them put them in camps and they know they have family in the united states so they say okay we've got 50 people in a camp we want five thousand dollars off each one of you off your family like give us a number we're going to call your family okay send us the money down and then sometimes they'd agree on okay two thousand you know like but so it sounds like you know you're making money out of poor people right but you do it on mass you do it 10,000 people and you get a couple of thousand dollars each that's like you know $20,000 200, 200 million dollars so they started doing caravans for strength to avoid these mass kidnappings what was different about the latest caravan they, they actually became, became a caravan crossing borders they used to be going through parts of Mexico together then they started crossing borders now the caravan began in October around October 12th and there was a call for them to meet and my friend Orlean, again, the, the, the journalist down in Honduras, he was down there filming with his TV crew, putting it on TV. Oh, they're down here, they're going on this caravan, and suddenly it went boom, and like loads of people saw it on TV, and they're like, I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Now, the desperation was so heavy. Now, Honduras is in a real meltdown kind of stage. Honduras is bad. Venezuela's worse, but Honduras might be like number two for how, you know, real meltdown cases in Latin America right now. So people were like, you know, I was talking to some of these people, they would say, like, I saw it on TV and I was, that's it, I'm going. Just decided right away, I'm going to get my bag and I'm going to go. So they arrived at the, when they, they went through Guatemala, into Guatemala, you know, they became big, like 7,000 people. Um, arrived at the, at the border with Mexico. And, you know, first of all, they tried to, you know, they, they, there was a, a push and shove on the border and tear gas was fired. And they went down and crossed the river in some of them walking across with a rope, some of them going across on tires. It was a kind of crazy scene, you know, this scene down there was squatted half the bridge and then they came down. So it was kind of kind of a big deal. I know the, the idea of calling them an invading army and so forth was, was, was obviously overblown. But like, I think it was significant 
scenes, quite historic scenes that were happening down there. And what was the overall goal? To make it through to the United States? Yeah, I mean, you know, different people had different ideas. It was kind of one of these weird things, you know, like it was go to the United States. Now, some people had no idea where they were going, had no real plan. Some people, some people had very clear um, cases of being like, I'm a refugee, um, you know, understanding a bit about refugee legislation and, and like fleeing very specific cases where they've been targeted by gangs working with corrupt police who want to kill them, who have like attacked them. And they've run and like, I want to seek refuge in the United States or in Mexico. Someone was seeking refuge in Mexico, which is not the safest place to seek <laughs> refuge. Yeah. I mean, like there's been cases of people with one uh, cameraman I know who, who fed Honduras and then was killed in Mexico. Has there ever been ever any discussion of the United States military intervening and trying to do something about the cartels? So there's been like a U.S. Um, you know, some U.S. forces, like U.S. marshals, um, sometimes, like, uh, Mexico is very proud of its constitution and very proud of its sovereignty and doesn't want U.S. force acting in Mexico. And I think the the, the kind of idea really of, of U.S. military, military is pretty out there. Um, it's pretty, uh, you know, like it wouldn't help it be bogged down into more problems and, and there'd be no appetite in Mexico for that. But there have been some cases of, U.S. doing some kind of activity in Mexico. Like, for example, when they went after Chapel Guzman, when they got here, when there was a big shootout, they, they got him the first time, actually, without shots fired. And and then he went to prison and escaped. That one escape from... He's escaped more than once, right? Yeah, escaped twice, yeah. He, did he get helicoptered out once? No, 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 no there have been... Uh, prisoners have been helicoptered yeah. out, which is crazy. <laughs> he, he had the one tunnel escape with yeah. the electric bike, yeah. right? Yeah. Which yeah. was crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, when he went to the John and went to the bathroom, yeah. he just stepped behind the door and <laughs> he's gone. Yeah. That was insane. It, it was really weird when I went to New York right now, seeing him in the court in New York, like seeing him in the flesh after all these years covering this stuff. And I saw him and it was like, I, you know, I've been to his village before. I talked to his mother. I'd stayed the night with his cousin in, in, in his village. Wow. Up in the mountains. Uh, you know, seen What's all, it like up there? It's, um, you know, quite uh, rugged mountains. Uh, Sierra Madre. Uh, it's like uh, you go in a car up and uh, on like, we went in a, in a four by four, serious off road, up and down. And there's people, you know, wandering around there, fully armed. Like they saw guys with like ski mask. One guy like camouflage gear, camo gear, ski mask, AK-47, just like on like quad bikes, just driving around the area. Wow. And uh, we went up there with a, a, a colleague and a photographer, a uh, story for Time magazine. And we, we went up there and, and drove into the village. And I bought a bottle of whiskey, thinking to, to kind of offer to the, to the family member to say, oh, you know, here's a, here's a bottle of whiskey. To... And when we arrived there, and, uh, and he said we could stay at his house. And I bought out a bottle of whiskey. I said, you know, he's, and he said, we don't drink in this house. <laughs> We're Christians. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we don't drink. And, and it's this nice guy. And he was like evangelical Christian. Wow. Cousin. And he was, we'd sit there talking and he'd be like quoting the Bible. Whoa. And coming stuff. And, you know, it's like. Does he not understand yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a church. It's an evangelical church Ugh. right there, which is supposedly built by chapel. Wow. which his mother goes to right in front of her house. And we sat through a three-hour evangelical service 
um, sitting there with, you know, Chapo's mum there and all his family members were sitting there. And the cousin even said, oh, we've got some friends here. Because he, he, he was basically, he said, like, you stay with me. You know, you're my responsibility. If something happens, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to pay for this. Right. So we're like, yeah, we're going to behave ourselves and, you know, in, in, in the village. And, and he said, during the church, and we want to also have, we have somebody from England here and somebody from the US and come out in this, in this church ceremony. So, yeah, yeah, really, really bizarre scenes up there. And there was... So bizarre. Did, yeah. did you talk to them about the contradiction of being an evangelical Christian, being involved in essentially a mass murder and drug running operation? So, so the cousin is supposedly, you know, he was like a cattle rancher now. I don't exactly, you know, obviously he's, he calls, um, you know, he, he, I don't, you know, I don't know how much he might have been involved in the past, but his, 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 he says he's, 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 a, he's a farmer there. And the mother, um, Chapo's mother, who's 88, was 88 then, now is like uh, 89, 90 now. Um, you know, she talks about her son with kind of pride. I didn't, you know, I didn't push too hard on mm, like, you know, there was a, a bunch of, of gunmen around and stuff. Uh, I didn't like push too hard in like, you know, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, they this is this is their way of life. I mean, these are so seeing him in the court um, was kind of bizarre. Seeing you know seeing him right there and in New York as well in Brooklyn, you know, right there in Brooklyn. Yeah, and they brought in all of these crazy characters as as, as uh, cooperating witnesses. They brought in fourteen cooperating witnesses um, on a bunch of other gangsters. How do they protect those people? Yeah, I mean, heavily heavily protected. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think I think it was ethically very questionable um why they brought a lot of those people in um they were they brought in one guy whose nickname is chupetta who confessed himself to as many as 150 killings and maybe he did a lot more uh and and he makes a deal likely makes a deal to uh cooperate against el chapo so you get into a kind of weird intrigue there mm. um, about what the government was doing with this whole case yeah, there's a history of that in this country with uh, prosecuting the mob, with, mm. uh, John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano, who mm. was an admitted murderer and talked about the murders of, that he committed and still they allowed him to get free. Mm. Yeah, one of his, one of his, John Gotti's lawyer was one of the lawyers for El Chapo. Of course. Yeah, and uh, then they had another. <laughs> <laughs> so they got some of these lawyers there. It was a crazy kind of show. Yeah. It was weird. It was like, you know, New York and the show they were putting on there. Yeah. Um, it, it, I felt a kind of disconnect with the things I've been seeing over the last few years and, and it didn't really... Why was it in New York? They, you know, they, they indicted him in a bunch of places and I think they chose New York for the reason they wanted more of a show. Wow. Uh, I think I think they, I mean, they, they... They bought, you know, more than 50 witnesses, you know, three, and a, three months of trial. Um, what was his defense? So... They, they originally tried a bit of a defense of – they wanted to get a bit of a defense of how there's a kind of cons government conspiracy um, of, like, showing things like Fast and Furious that you mentioned, like saying, oh, how come the government's trafficking guns mm -hmm. to the cartels? And one of the witnesses had before – one of the witnesses against him had before used this weird defense called public authority, saying he had permission from the United States government – to traffic drugs. So basically saying there's a kind of conspiracy involving the Mexican government is totally corrupt and working with cartels. Mm. The US government is corrupt and working with cartels and having very suspicious agencies. And El Chapo is kind of a fool guy that they're putting this blame on. Mm. Now that didn't really, the, 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 the US 
prosecutors shut that down and the judge they just said you can't talk about this stuff you can't say that so like when fast and furious came up they said no you can't talk about it you can't talk you about can't it. couldn't talk about it in the court well that's ethically ambiguous yeah right? yeah yeah because exactly. like that's a real thing that happened yeah so, the, so you, you, you know we can't talk about that, that and then the defense tried a bit well they had audios of el chapo and they said oh well, you know how do you know it's him and is he really the main guy in this in the lower cartel now there is as well um very possibly he's not the top guy in, in the lower cartel there might well be another guy called miles ambada who's really the number one and he might be more of an emblematic figure but for some reason el chapo became the most famous in the world and like, so this other guy, is he still free? Yeah, he's still free. What is his name again? Mayo Zambada. Uh, and where's he at? In the Somewhere mount, in the, the mountains. mountains. In Mexico. They're always in the mountains? Often. I mean, one of these, these weird things you think like if you're a drug lord and you've got all of the money, you know, you've got millions, billions they say, let's say hundreds of millions. I think they exaggerate how much money some of these guys have individually. But then you could go anywhere in the world. You think you could go somewhere out but these guys tend to be in their places. They, 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 they're, they're, they're people like some of these people are people who are very uneducated. I mean, El Chapo, who's as a kid, he was carrying sacks full of oranges to sell, almost no education. And they start handling hundred, no, billions of dollars. They're de dealing with a billion dollar international business. And they've got the capacity to understand and deal with that. But at the same time, they're still really hyper local. Mm. in some ways they're still like people who they understand their world they understand it from their environment to control and become masters of their environment um, to become kind of powerful in in that place hmm. lords in that place but you know they couldn't you know the idea of them going to like sitting in Italy in a cafe and kind of running it from there they don't it's kind of beyond that. They would have to be there near the business because otherwise someone would just take it over, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, you probably have to run that thing with an iron fist. Yeah, I mean, you, you could think, though, or maybe like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, maybe you get your Christian cousin. He won't rip you off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how much, also, how much money do you need to make? I mean, right, I'm right. Like, you when think can you get out? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, with corruption, I mean, there's the issue of like a lot of police in Mexico are poor, so that's yeah. why they take deals but there's a, an ex-governor called Thomas Yaddington who I met a few years ago when he was governor um, of Tamaulipas state and uh, again he, he was not only taking money from drug traffickers after he left being governor he got into drug trafficking himself <sighs> and it's like you think well once you've made a couple of million right do you need to make another 10 million but then again I mean, the same with, with I don't understand with that business. With, with businesses. Yeah. What do you think, what's that incentive? Why do they think they always want to make more money? Well, I don't know. I mean, we were talking about that recently with Jeff Bezos when we found out he has $150 billion. Like, <laughs> when do you just say, we're good? We're good? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think it becomes, it's a game more than it is mm. anything else. Like, they might as well be playing Parcheesi or Monopoly or whatever. They're trying to win. You know, mm. they're trying to constantly win and also you have an obligation because you're a ceo of this company so you you're running this enormous business that's earning money for all these other people as well it's all very complicated though that has to do with a lot of psychological factors where people can't put things into perspective and they get caught up in the race mm. yeah i guess yeah i mean drug traffickers are thinking that same thing yeah. some because when they're making i mean also that like uh, like you know people have explained to me involved in this world they make a lot of money, but they spend a lot of money. Which oh, is yeah. Why these, these numbers are wrong. Like with Chapo, they, they said um, he's worth $14 billion. That's what the U.S. government said. 
in that case. He's worth 14 billion. But then he's, you know, people explain to me, you, you know, 14 billion is when you take the value of drugs you're saying he, he, he trafficked and you're adding that up and saying it's 14 billion dollars worth. But really, all the time, you're paying back suppliers, you're paying people off, you're owing money. And you know, and, and you know, and you're buying hippos and jets yeah. <laughs> and gold covered Rolls Royces. Yeah, yeah. Those, those some of that, I think, you know, some of that was might have been exaggerated with him. He had a lot of kind of more like middle class houses. Oh yeah, I went to one of the last the last hideout he was caught in. It was more like a middle class, it's a normal house. kind of house. But you'd have a lot of those. What the fuck happened with Sean Penn? Yeah, <laughs> why was Sean Penn up there talking to him? That was so strange. Yeah, that photograph of Sean Penn yeah. shaking hands with him, and then Conor McGregor wore that same T-shirt and and, and he took that same pose on when he was when he was uh, gonna fight Eddie Alvarez, I believe it was. <clears throat> yeah, what was that about? Like, why was Sean Penn visiting him? Yeah, bizarre moment. I mean, you have a. Uh a, a, an actor who's played gangsters. There he is, right there. Yeah, <laughs> there it so is. So strange. Um, an actor who's played gangsters with a gangster who they're having, you know, movies made about him. And there was a woman that Sean Penn knew that hooked this all up, Kate right? She's, Castillo. She's a famous Mexican actress. Is yeah, that yeah, the deal? yeah. Okay. So, so the sto whole story starts there. She is, yeah. Look at them all palling around. Hey, yeah. here's me with a murderer. <laughs> Hi. So, yeah, so, so the, I used to be married to Madonna. <laughs> yeah. So the, the story started. So Kate de Castillo, who you see there, mm -hmm. she was an actress in um, a, a TV series about drug traffickers, which have now become a huge deal in, in Latin America. Mm. Um, they're called uh, like telenovelas, means like soap operas kind of thing, series, TV series. And the whole bunch of them made about drug traffickers, which are really popular. And she was in one called La Reina del Sur, the Queen of the South. And in that, she played this drug trafficker. And afterwards, in some kind of weird moment afterwards, I think she was like really into her role and stuff. She came out with this message she wrote saying, um, you know, Mexico is in such, this is such a tragic situation in Mexico. Um, you know, why don't they come, you know, drug traffickers come and, like, um, traffic with love. I trust you more than I do the government. Um, which is, These are kind of sentiments that some people have, but, it, you know, it was kind of a strange thing, kind of a bit of an out-there thing for a, for a TV star to say. Mm. And then Chapo, El Chapo apparently became kind of enamored with her, seeing her on TV, and they started this kind of communication. Now, Sean Penn then got involved in this and was like, uh, you know, I'm going to go there as well. And we can talk about the idea, you know, the pretense of the meeting was as well talking about making a movie or TV series of his story. Mm. And El Chapo giving the rights to Kate de Castillo and Sean Penn was kind of involved in this somehow. Now, Sean Penn, there's a bit of discussion like now that Sean Penn and Kate de Castillo fell out over this. They have different versions of what happened there. But, you know, Sean Penn decided to go and write this story for Rolling Stone about the whole experience. Yeah. So they went then and this meeting was arranged and they went up to the mountains and when that photo was taken, now they, at that point he didn't actually give an interview to Sean Penn, but they had a dinner and they had a meeting up in the mountains. And... And then left, and then they were meant to, afterwards, there was then a, a big attempt to hit Chapel. 
but he escaped. So that's when some people say that the Mexican government had followed them and you know used their their trace to try and get to El Chapo. Mm. But he did escape. He almost got caught close to there quite soon afterwards, but escaped. It makes sense. I mean, how else would Sean Penn be able to slide through? He's a famous actor. I bet he doesn't even speak Spanish. Yeah, no, I don't does think he? Think it does. I mean, I don't know if if so. If he was followed, I'm not saying that he was um, in any case, in any way, deliberately no uh, leading them there. But it's something that I think about all the time. I think about okay, if I'm going to meet criminals, um, am I being followed? Right. Um, and am I going to lead? You know, what's my connection with law enforcement? What's your connection with criminals? It's a very di- difficult thing that I've been balancing and thinking about for a lot of years. So, anyway, the Chapo escapes um, and then said he couldn't meet up again for the interview because he was it was too hot for him. So they made this video interview where he was sent some questions and he videoed himself answering the questions, mm. which is kind of interesting. It was the first kind of statement he made and he said I know know, various things I've been doing this since I was 15 he didn't really give much away Uh, and then he was caught and when he was caught they were like we've got to move the story so then the story came out like bang after he was caught in early 2016 so it had to have some sort of an impact in them catching him must have I mean it's possible uh, it only makes sense yeah yeah it's possible I mean Chapo I think was pretty you know he'd already been caught before so he was caught in 2014 um, was in prison, escaped in 2015 through that tunnel, and then was caught again in 2016. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it had an impact. I, you know, I don't want to. But they were looking for him. Yeah, they were looking for him, and, and they seemed, he seemed to have lost a lot of his protection. You know, he he before you know going back a few years, you know, he had enormous protection. You know, and those mountains. I mean, in the village, you see there's a house above, like there's a, there's kind of a main clearing where his mother's compound is. You know, it's a pretty basic still, that village. Then up from there, you see a um, a house on a hill, and apparently that's where El Chapo, for a long time, used to go and just stay in that house, um, you know, in, when he was on the run in the past. So he had so much protection, and any time the military would come close up the mountain, you've got hundreds of people you know, on radio saying the military yeah. are coming up. You know, get clear. Man. What a crazy world you study. Really, it's, uh, it's amazing. I, I really appreciate you coming here and, and talking to me about this. And uh, this book is El Narco. Do you have more books that are yeah. available? Yeah, sure. So my first book is El Narco. My second book is uh, Gangster Warlords, uh, which also has uh, um, stuff on the MS-13, on the gangs in Brazil, the gangs in Jamaica, as well as Mexico. And I'm working on my third book now. And the third book is about? About gun trafficking. Hmm. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate your time and uh, you, you've lived a very, very fascinating life. Stay safe out there, man. Uh, great to be here. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, Thank thanks, you. Man. Thank you very much. Wow. 